in the position that you would think of as being rear fanged, they have three very enlarged teeth and the shape of the tooth is very similar to the kukri dagger. You don't want to be bit by them. They will slash the ever-loving hell out of you. And there is also something in their saliva that acts as an anticoagulant. It's not a true venom, but it is definitely an anticoagulant and you will bleed everywhere. And they use those teeth to slice the egg open and then they stick their heads in and drink the entire contents of the egg. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. We are live. (laughs) You weren't even ready and I wasn't ready. I was like... Then why'd you press it? I don't know. I I was drinking my beer when we... Okay. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of From the Ground Up Podcast. Obviously, we're on a Tuesday because last night was the Saints. And if you watch that game, it was amazing. I truly didn't think we were going to pull it off, but we did. And who that? Um, Sorry, Sean Gray. Um, But the Texans looked amazing. And that's my little snippet of non. Both teams really won, guys. But they did, I mean, they did, they did both play really, really yeah. well, especially for our first game of the season. Also didn't realize the Saints haven't won in the season opener in six years. What? That's crazy because it's not like they're, they've been a successful team for the last six years for the most part. So I know. Very interesting. But. Welcome to NFL Today <laughs> podcast. NFL ground up, NFL, I can't, I was from trying to make. From the first down up. From the first down up. From the touchdown, uh, I like that. Um, that's really funny. Um, but okay, no more football talk until next week. Um, I'm also kind of confused shit. how James Lewis is listening to us on mute or watching us on mute at a certain point. So it's not possible. Sonky is <laughs> closed captioning on. Uh, maybe he can read the chat. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know, but we do have some animals available, and we have some <laughs> show announcements. You want to do it? Yeah, you want to do it? Like, I know, I just thought it was funny. So, um, I don't know if we've been talking about this on the uh, streams or whatever, but we've been talking about this to be one person. We've been wanting to vend the Baltimore Repticon, and by friendships and Joe talking to people, we actually are going to vend it on Saturday, September 21st. It'll be our first show in Maryland. Never mind. Our first show in Baltimore. (laughs) Sorry, we've done Haver to Grace twice. Sorry. (laughs) It'll be our first show. In real Maryland this time, Baltimore. Oh, that's real Maryland. Big city of Maryland. Um, Baltimore. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is bad. Um, But we're excited. I'm probably going to be exhausted because last week we had Haver to Grace. This week we have um, Oaks, PA. And then next week will be Baltimore. So we're just going to be there on Saturday. We won't be there Saturday and Sunday. But and shout out to Pedro of Funky Morelia for, for hooking us up. A plug. Okay. Right? Is that what the kids say? I don't know. But um, not sorry. like that in no. that weird voice. No. <laughs> just thank you, Pedro, for hooking us up. But if you won't see us there, you can look on our website, portcityfarthons.com, and see what animals we have available and shirts available. But the, there might be some special animals that come to the show that will not be posted on the website. So stay tuned. Yes. Yes. Tonight, uh, for our guest, we have one of the smartest people I know. And uh, our first guest, our first remote guest. 
um, from the ground really? up. Really? Like he was? Yeah. I, I wish I looked up the date prior oh to this because it must he have probably been thought almost... we were so stupid. He claimed that he doesn't think that, but he definitely thought it. Yeah. And I haven't That's... gotten much smarter. Um, <laughs> but. He is my on-call smart person any, with anything snake-related. It's hard it. because we want to say, like, snake person, but we could pretty much ask him anything. But I was about to say, I haven't let myself ask him non-reptile-related smart people things because then I feel like I'll bug him too much. Because I, you know <laughs> I have lots of random questions about everything that only smart people or Google knows. Um, but, yeah. Okay, sorry. You Google and you have when you, a Travis Wyman. Hey, Travis. Not a. <laughs> a Travis Wyman. Not a tra- doctor. <laughs> when you have doc, a doctor, Travis Wyman. If you guys don't know, he's a geneticist, ball python breeder, and all around cool reptile keeper. Travis, thank you for being here again. Not a problem. And yes, you can hit me with anything, Melissa. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> you might request that. So Probably not. Was- Just realize that I won't answer you between the hours of like eight and four because I can't bring my phone to work. <clears throat> Get that? Fair enough. So ball pythons. What's going on in your ball python life these days? Um, not a lot anymore. My last cl- clutch finished hatching last weekend, so now it's just raising babies. Is there anything genetically that you're excited about? Like, what kind of genes do you work with? Um, I work with, well, uh, I've got some acid stuff. I didn't make any acid pairings this year. Um, Working with cypress. Did a few of those and some red stripe, genetic stripe stuff this year. Very cool. So are you are you putting those like uh, genetic stripe with that acid cypress stuff? Is that- I am doing the genetic stripe with the red stripe. So making red devils and things like that. Um, I also put it with uh, Mojave. So working for I've got Mojave red stripe pet genetic stripes that I'm looking to move forward to make super red Mojave's super red Mojave genetics. <clears throat> um. I will hopefully eventually get cypress and red stripe together. I missed that this season. Um, and I want to get cypress and acid together, but my girl didn't get up to size in time. So maybe next year, maybe the year after. Who knows? How many clutches did you have all together? I had six this season. I try to keep my stuff small. Um, three, four years ago, I had... I put 14 girls together, 13 of them went, which usually that's unheard of. You know, you expect 50% of your girls to go, and I got almost all of them to go. And I had 198 babies, and that just overwhelmed the hell out of me. And I decided I was never doing that again. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that would definitely overwhelm me. So how would you go about, like, like, getting your stuff down to what you wanted to keep, like, and moving females and stuff like that? Um, I basically look at the direction I want to take my projects and, you know, streamline it along that way. Um, sometimes I will keep animals just because they're nice to have and I'll keep them for the novelty of having them. But then once it becomes a matter of, I need space for project animals to move up, 
I'll let them go. Um, in fact, I just did that this week. I've got, you know, I made a bunch of different white snakes. I had a solid white black eye. I have a blue eye. I have a uh, purple passion, which is in the blue eye group, but it's the dirty kind. And I made them just because I wanted to have them, but I had no project in mind for them. And now I'm running out of space, so I'm moving them along. So I forget I forget what we were talking about, but you're like, oh yeah, just get your your UV light or something like that or black light or what do you is that why you had that is because of all those white snakes? Um, that's part of the reason I had it, but I also had it, um, in, well, I can't say it prior life, uh, earlier in my years, I used to do a lot of whitewater rafting out West before I moved out here to the East coast. Um, and I would carry a black light flashlight because I would go out hunting for things at night and in the desert scorpions abound and scorpions fluoresce under UV light. So you could go out hiking mm -hmm. in the evening and after dark and flash up some scorpions but is that a is that a common thing in ball pythons to where you get white snakes and people figure out what it is that way yeah um using the black light to help you figure out what's in them is helpful it's not a guaranteed thing um so my super fire is also possibly super pastel or pastel or yellow belly based on the pairing and it was a solid white snake and when i put the black light on it it was still a solid white snake and i couldn't see a bloody thing in it <laughs> and that was the next thing i was gonna ask you i was like is there an actual solid white ball python when it comes down to it that girl was solid white there was nothing that i could make out on her no pattern no anything mm. um a lot of people talk about like the super lessers or the lesser mojaves as being all white i have never found that to be the case um as babies, they're really bright. As they become adults, they get more of a milky cream color to them. And almost all of them develop a dorsal stripe to some extent. Um, you know, mine, it's a hypo lesser Mojave. So you'd think that it, that hypo gene would take even more of the pigment out, but she still has a dorsal stripe and you can see it, you know, to the naked eye. But when you put the black light on her, you can really see it just zigzagging across her back. So those, I mean, a lot of those babies look, you know, pure white to the naked eye. What is it that, you know, allows you to see the pattern under that black? Is light? it our eyes or is it? <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting a text from my child. <laughs> You're okay. They're important. Yeah. What is it about UV light or, or the black the, Sorry, the UV light? The way it works with the ball pythons and stuff is, so aside from just pigmentation, there's uh, crystal structures in the, in the underlying the scales. Okay. And those determine patterning as well. So while you may not see the pigment by putting the UV light on, you see that it yeah. hits those underlying crystal structures and that changes... And that's what our eyes can't see. <laughs> yes. Well, and when you fluoresce it, it like the way that the crystals bend the light, that's how you can see the pattern. That's wild. Do other do people with other types of snakes use this or is it mostly in ball pythons? Um I would be I would guess you could use it in other types of snakes. I don't know that anybody has really tried because most of the other 
you know, leucistic forms haven't really been comboed out the way they have been in ball pythons. You know, you don't really have a leucistic boa that's also whatever 8 million other things that boa constrictors have. Plus, boas don't generally have massive pattern disruptor mutations the way ball pythons do. Um, berms and retics, you get some pattern. I don't know that anybody's really combined all of the mutations the way they have in ball pythons. Now, I'm not into berms and retics, so I could just be completely ignorant of it. Um, you know, you could try it with Amazon tree boas, but again, there's not really a lot of pattern mutations in Amazon right. tree boas. They're just color mutations for the most part. Right. And is that something to where in ball pythons, is it an issue, the fact that, you know, we're getting all the, everyone's putting every single gene together? And I mean, at some point from a <laughs> genetic standpoint, does it There's like... going to be a negative effect. <laughs> Well, I mean, as Nick Mutton and I have both made the observation, it's it's kind of entertaining that we can just keep cranking all these mutations together in ball pythons. And so far, we haven't hit a train wreck of just too many mutations in the ball python. Um, now, I'm certain it could happen. You know, obviously with things like spider and spot nose and other mutations that show a slight degree of neuro in them, if they're non-allelic but you put them together and they act one on top of the other, that could train wreck things out. Um, but we start to see some of these problem things building up in combinations that we're making, like if you do the Hetfler blue eye group and combine it with pied or you make a blue eyed pied, you get micro eyes. And that's because they're in the same similar pathway. So they chain together and in chaining them together, it disrupts the development of the actual eyeball. So it's a little pin eye instead of being a normal sized eyeball. It seems like the eyes are like, the first thing to be affected or, you know, we talk a lot about well, like with the leucistic and yeah. And I'm going to say it right. Cause Travis is here. Leucistic. I'm not a stickler about how other people say it. I just have how I say it. I mean, it's okay. I teach my kids that C says K. So I can think about it. Leucistic um, things. It affects the eyes. And then he's saying this effect. It seems like the eyes are easily affected by other genetic things. Well, the reason leucistic affects the eyes, okay, so leucism deals with pigment deposition and with all of our snakes, they've got the two different kinds of pigment, the melanins, the dark pigments, and then the xanthins or erythrins, which are all the same family, the yellow pigments and the red pigments. Now, melanin is fundamentally needed in the development of the eye cup early on. You have so to have something dark. You Well, it's not that you need the melanin, but you need the melanocytes because they act more than just like a pigment cell. They act as a transport cell and a signaling cell. So Triple threat. Right. So you need that in there. Now, when you disrupt the way those are laid down in the eye cup, it means that the eye develops weirdly. In the het form, you're usually okay because you've got the wild type 
allele there balancing it out. But when you get the homozygous form, now your melanocytes don't deposit right. So your eye cup doesn't develop right, which means that your eye itself doesn't develop right. And what we generally see is that bug eye phenotype. The eye overdevelops or rapidly develops within the skull, and so it doesn't balance out. But with the piebald gene on top of that, piebaldism is another displacement of the pigmentation. It doesn't lay it down right. So now you have two sets of genes disrupting how the pigment lays down. And this time it breaks it down so much that there isn't enough signaling coming from the melanocytes. And that gives them the little pinhead eyes because the eyes don't develop properly. And then even our friend um, in the chat, Isaac, he was saying that his, his runt little snow corns have little eyes, which is something that I haven't seen before. And I've produced, you know, snow corns and stuff like that. But and I he wonder, says they have black. Even a true he says they have black that, freckles around the pupil, in addition to the small eyes. And I don't know. I don't know if that means anything. But. Yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with corn snakes. I mean, I I've had one corn snake in my life. Um, Damn you, Hey, it was the first snake I bought with my own money. <laughs> I was 14 years old. That son of a bitch died two and a half, three years ago. Whoa. So, you know, he, he you made it a good long time. He was like he, 29 years old. How trusty of a pet he is, and you haven't gotten another one yet? Well, you know, it, it's one of those things. I, I, I did my time with corn snakes, and I appreciate them, but I've, you know, moved into other weirder species since then. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a betrayal of the species, to be honest, but uh, I guess we'll let it slide. But the eye thing is so, oh, it's very interesting. And it's interesting that Isaac saw like black freckles because we we're talking about melanin mm. and that like. But I, I think he means in the pupil or. Yeah, he said around the, the pupil. I mean, around the pupil. <laughs> As yeah, I poke myself I feel like in the we, eye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't stand right. <laughs> <laughs> And I feel like we talked about this, you know, in the previous podcast, but quite frankly, there's a lot more people who are listening now who probably haven't listened to that one. So. I'm sure you could check that one out. It's probably embarrassing for us, but I'm sure Travis sounded smart. So go check that one out. And uh, I guess let's get into the uh, other weird things that you have going on. You mentioned it a little bit, but I mean, you have snakes that honestly, from a standpoint of like readily available as far as in the hobby, it seems like lots are you know, imports and stuff like that. I mean, you have cool, rare snakes like kukri snakes. I don't even know if anyone What'd you just say? works with, right? That's how you say it, kukri? Kukri, yes. Like the kukri, kukri snake. <laughs> no, not like the kukri. No. Um, they're actually named after a type of uh, Indonesian knife called a kukri. And the reason they're named for that is because they are... Okay, well, imagine that they're a rear-fanged snake, but they're not venomous. So they have these, in the position that you would think of as being rear fanged, they have three very enlarged teeth, and the shape of the tooth is very similar to the kukri dagger. And in other words, you don't want to be bit by them. You don't want to be bit by them, no. Um, they will slash the ever-loving hell out of you, and there is also something in their saliva that acts as an anticoagulant. It's not a true venom, but it is definitely an anticoagulant, and you will bleed everywhere 
we might as well be dying. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that extreme. It's a tiny snake. Well, I mean, an adult kukri is. I mean, my two adults are probably the size of a small corn snake. You know, they're they're eighteen inches, twenty four inches or so. So, if if one of those got a hold of me, it could probably put a hurting on me, and I just do my best not to let them do that. And were they readily feeding on rodents? Is this an animal that comes in feeding on rodents? I do not feed mine rodents. Um, I could. A lot of people I know have switched them over, but the reason they have these teeth is because they are a type of egg eater. Um, mm. They typically feed on lizard and snake eggs, but they will do bird eggs. And they use those teeth to slice the egg open, and then they stick their heads in and drink the entire contents of the egg. Um, so I feed quail eggs and they'll pop the quail eggs that way. I don't have any videos of the kukris. They're super secretive and super temperamental about whenever I come into the room, they usually bolt. Um, they've been getting better over the last year or so, year and a half that I've had them. So now I can come in and they usually just freeze if they're out rather than bolting. But I haven't tried to test the limits of sitting in there and videoing them cutting open an egg and swallowing it down. That would be wild. And do you, or as babies, I mean, can you find eggs small enough? You just take a quail egg and cut, you can cut the top off the egg and put it in there and they'll just go drink out of it. They don't care. It's like a crazy. little poached egg. A That's like crack, crack. It's somewhere <laughs> in between like, it seems like a difficult animal to keep, but to feed, that seems very convenient. Yeah, they're really easy to feed, you know, once you pay attention to what they do. Now, a lot of people have had difficulty with them in the past because they're trying to convert them over to mice okay. and rodents and things, and that's not what they're immediately inclined to. But, you know, when you figure out they, these guys eat eggs in nature, so why not feed them eggs? And since they're designed to cut the egg open and drink out of it rather than swallow the egg whole, then it just seems to make sense. Well, if they'll open it themselves, why don't I just open it for them and they'll it. chug it down? Um, I, I seasonal feed most of my stuff. So when I'm feeding them, I will also occasionally, like I have the Reptilinx microlinks. Okay. So sometimes I'll cut an egg open and I'll cram one of those in there because you also have to think if they're opening an egg, they're eating the contents of the egg. So there might be a little embryo in there. Mm. And so about every third feeding or so, I'll drop a microlink into the egg and they'll swallow that down and call where, it good too. Where did you first hear about these snakes? Um, I saw an ad for them that was posted up on facebook by outback for the red phase ones and at the time i wasn't quick enough to grab them but then i was down at a show and they had some of the brown phase and i pulled up the brown i got the brown phase ones and then i came across another guy who was selling a couple of the reds so i have the reds too now and is that i mean i'm guessing they're pretty fresh imports or wild coughs or something like that? My brown ones were fresh imports. Um, my reds are captive bred, but out of Europe. So <clears throat> so were those were those imported by someone who's really into kukri snakes? No, just by, you know, 
one of the big importers. So I quarantined for four months and checked them to make sure they were clean. I had to run a anti-helminthine through them because they had nematodes. But they've oh. been cleaned out and they're doing great. Yeah, so can you explain a little bit of kind of what a nematode is in that snake and how to get rid of them and all that stuff, like the exact process? Nematodes are just a little type of parasitic worm. Um, you know, they're like roundworms that your dog will get. Um, there are many ways that you can deworm a snake. Some people use flagell and things like that. I consulted with my vet, came up with the proper dose of um, ivermectin. I solubilized the ivermectin, and then I used a one mil syringe, tuberculin syringe, and I injected it into the egg. And they drank down the egg, and that gave them their dosage. Nice. And how long do you have to do that for? Uh, I just did one feeding. I gave them a month. And I checked him over again and didn't see any indication. I waited another month and checked him and they came back clean. So um, I wouldn't do more than once a month because ivermectin is kind of nasty stuff and it tends to persist. But that's also the nice thing is it kind of persists in the tissues. So anything you don't get immediately, like if there are any oocysts floating around in their intestines and stuff and they hatch after the initial pass through, it tends to get caught later. And it's, I mean, it's the same stuff that you give your dog when you're giving them a heartworm pill. Your, your dog's just taking it in pill form. But you get the, the liquid form and it's easy to pump into an egg using a syringe. So, But you have to be very careful with the dosage. And that's why I said I talked with my veterinarian and we did the math together and sat down and it's like, 0.0002 microliters. So I had to do a serial dilution down to make it safe. And do you literally see like the nematodes in the stool when, when the snake goes to the bathroom? Mm, well, if you know what you're looking for, you can, but I did a, I did a smear on a slide because I have my own light microscope. Yeah. You know, because I'm a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Smart people stuff. Ken, so like, is there a way that someone, if someone had a microscope at home, I mean, is it simple enough to where, you know, your regular hobbyists, if they were importing a bunch of animals, would be able to, to identify things? Yeah, they could. Um, you know, you, it's not something that you just pick up off the cuff. You know, I, I have a lot of this because of a lot of my schooling, you know, I've taken two Countless. semesters I, i've taken two semesters of parasitology in my days and this was part of the stuff that we had to do so you know but you know nematodes i mean they're just little tiny worms and if you know what you're looking at then you know exactly what you're seeing um you know the oocysts are a little bit harder to tell if you don't know what you're looking at but again if you've educated yourself up properly and you've done your research you can do a fecal float and then just pop the slide down and take a look, and you can see if they're in there. Wait, what's a? Yeah, well, exactly <laughs> I don't know if I want to ask this, but what's a fecal float? Okay, so a fecal float is you take the feces, and you need to get them fresh, 
So, and not full of dirt and crap like that, because that's going to complicate everything. So this is why we keep on paper towels when we're quarantining. They crap out, you get that, you scrape it into a test tube with water. Um, usually you have something in it like sucrose to make it a little bit more dense. You shake it up, you put the slide on top, and then anything that's in there will float up and stick to the top of the slide, the cover slip, uh-huh. and then you pull that off and drop it onto the slide and look down. And things like OO cysts and some of the smaller critters will float up in that float. Uh-huh. And so you can see them. Okay. okay. Um, I also uh, I commented how Travis was a smart people thing to have microscopes and like three other people are like, I have microscopes. Excuse me. I didn't realize it's a common thing. They're just nerds too. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many people are doing fecal floats, but uh, were those, were those animals? I mean, how old do you think they were when they came in? Um, you know, I don't, other than saying that they're adults, I don't know. I mean, they're okay. probably you know, nothing ever grows as fast in the wild as it does in captivity. So my guess is they're probably four or five, six year old animals. And because you have multiple, does this mean you're planning to breed? That's my hope. Although when I picked them up, I was told they were a 1.1. And when I sent the sheds into Ben Morrill, he told me that they're a 0.2. So that complicates things. Um, now, not to knock Ben, but these are, as old world snakes, they're completely different than anything he set up his tests to look for. So it's possible his test is miscalling them. Um, but given the teeth on these guys and their temperaments, I'm not really inclined to sit there and try and pop them while they yeah. open and bleed me out. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. You got a tube of them. Yeah, I'll well, I yeah. like you come over. I'll let you stick the head end in a tube while I hold onto the tail. Pop them. Oh, you did it with out. rattlesnakes, so yeah, it's is... a lot bigger and easier to work with a rattlesnake in a weird way. Yeah. Bigger but... is easier. Yeah, really? they're, yeah, when they're bigger, they're easier to handle and control. And the, the sharp end is further away, which I prefer. True. <laughs> imagine, imagine a two foot corn snake with an attitude. Yeah, trying to yeah, that I mean, it, that's, that's not... broke to my hand. You're right. <laughs> You're right. We I had a question a little bit ago. What's the shelf life of quail eggs? I don't like, know. Are you, are, you them way before, <laughs> are you buying them way before you're feeding? Like, that's what I'm no. Wondering. I mean, I just I go to the the international market and I buy an 18 pack of them and I toss it in the fridge and it usually well. Now that I'm feeding five animals eggs, it doesn't last a season, but it'll get me through most of a season. Oh, wow. Okay. So they last a while. Yeah, they last a while. Can you get those like uh, fertilized eggs that they, I know that they eat in like Asian countries and stuff like that. They, you know, I might be able to, I haven't bothered to look. I mean, most of those are like duck and goose eggs, which is going to be a bit much for these guys to eat, but (laughs) Blackheads, I take them. I'm just, I'm just trying to make it more disgusting for everyone. Yeah, I'm just really <laughs> interested in the different eggs and, and things. I don't know the stuff we don't know about. We just do easy peasy rodents. So <laughs> I ask all the questions I can. Also, I'm like international market. Where's that? 
You guys don't have. You've got to have an internet. We're in, we're in Philly. We just don't know. We that's don't that's go where to Dorian goes. Dorian, yeah, true. His, dude, his weird crawfish right. at all times of the season. All kinds of stuff he does. Yeah, they've got all kinds of crazy things there. It's you know, it's probably a really good place for all those picky eaters and weird eaters. Like you know, anything that's going to eat weird stuff. You know, Kribos. I'm sure you could feed a Kribo just by taking a quick spin through your international food market. Yeah, I guess Fish, things that would stations anything. Yeah, or things that may prefer frogs. You know, you can get frog legs. You can get frog legs. You can get snack. rabbit. You can get quail. Uh, you know, crayfish, lobster, crabs, snails. Ooh, caiman lizard people. Mm, we know so many of those. <laughs> yeah, there's not many of those. <laughs> um, okay, because I'm ADD. Now going back to the kukri. Yeah. Um, so because you're not certain that they're point two, are you just gonna well the adults I'm not certain on the the reds that I bought, the guy guaranteed me that he popped and probed them as a male and a female. So and they're the same species, they're just the red ones come from an island population, so they're a different color. So if push comes to shove, comes to kick, comes to scream, not that I really like the idea. When my red male gets large enough, I'll try pairing him with the browns. But I'm hoping I can find a a verified brown male at some point before it comes to that. And I can use the brown and keep the browns to browns and the reds to reds. Is there a thing? I mean, can you just throw them together and see what happens? I probably could, yeah. Gotcha. There's, there's nothing that would stop me from doing that. Okay. Is there any sort of like combating known for male? Right. Yeah. Is there consequences if they happen to be two males? Like, I I would watch if I did it, but I mean, there's not a lot out there on the behavior of kukris. Okay. You know, there's there's not really a lot out there on them, regardless. Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> there's a handful of papers, and one of them is by he who shall not be named, naming everything after himself and his dog. Because that's how he does things. Um, Kukri Hoserai? Yeah. (laughs) And whatever the hell his dog's name is, Oxyrambunctious Sozii, and yeah. (laughs) And so that's the only real article or anything about that? Well, that's the one where he tries to redefine all of the species as something new because he just likes his name everywhere. Um, But obviously it has nothing on natural history of the animals. It's just, I decided to rename everything. Um, In terms of natural history... They're like quick, you know, this is the species that's found in the area, but they don't go a lot into anything other than a range map uh, where they're found, scale counts, and that's about it. So you're kind of going in blind? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay. So but, you know, it's fun. <laughs> even those guys in Europe, were those coming in from like a gravid female or were they actually captive? Or I don't know. Um, the guy I got them from would not tell me who he got them from in Europe, so I couldn't find the guy in Europe to talk to to find out about them. Very interesting. And I haven't pushed hard because I'm not... I was given mine at least two years before I even tried anything, so I want to make sure they're settled in and in sync with my room. Um, so, you know, maybe next spring I'll start really trying to find somebody who's worked with them and bred them. And if I can't find anybody, then I'll just have to start experimenting on my own and 
keep my fingers crossed that they don't maul each other. <laughs> That'd be a nightmare. So yeah, it would be, but you know, this is what happens when you're breeding species that are not common in the hobby. Right. Sometimes then, you have to be the case study. My thought process is like, if they start mauling each other, who's sticking their hand in there to separate them? That guy right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's the more, that's well, more what I'm thinking about. <laughs> but the nice thing is, I mean, even though they have some pretty wicked teeth, I have some of those uh, garden gloves with the the latex on it. I've got some industrial style of those, so it's like really heavy-duty coating. So I'll put those on and break them apart using those. And while they may not withstand a full, well-thought-out attack by the snakes, I'm sure that if I'm just trying to break them apart real quick, they won't have time to think about how to chew through the glove. Okay. Okay. Might want to film that one too. <laughs> just, just for Let's film this thing as it rips me apart. <laughs> so we we kind of skipped the the step that I want to get into is the, the general keeping of it. So I mean, well, how did you kind of make an assumption on how these things are kept? I mean, did you know people that were keeping them before? Nope. I so I went to Google and I found where they're from. And I then went to the weather map for where they're from. And I checked the min mean, the min max for the temperatures, but also the humidity, the rainfall, the light cycle and everything. And then I kind of set up their enclosure based, on, based that. on that type of thing. So these guys being from basically equatorial Southeast Asia, they don't see a huge flux in light cycle. Um, you know, it's 13, 11, 12, 12, 13, 11, 12, 12 type of thing. Um, they do have a bit of a monsoon season, but it's not a drastic pouring rain than dry as a bone. It's just, it rains pretty heavily for about six months of the year and then it rains less, but then it rains pretty heavily and then it rains less. So I try and keep it, you know, more, Obviously, I'm not flooding the cages that they're in because we can't just keep dumping water into our cages without turning them into anaerobic slime molds. Um, but, you know, I'll spray into them every couple of days really lightly during the wet season. And then during the dry season, I might hit them once a week. And temperature wise? Temperature wise, it's pretty stable there. Um, mid to upper 80s, you know, the lows are upper 70s low 80s so (laughs) so my room mostly ambient is about the 80 82 um so i just keep it like that i do have a heat tape on the bottom of the cage and it's only set it's set to 82 so in the winter it keeps it up but again with the seasonality they have, it's not extreme, but it's there, but it, it keeps them warm all the time. And how long have you been keeping them successfully? I've had them for 18 months or so, and they've been going great the whole time. And so those, the browns and the reds, those pairs, I mean, they've been good good to go? Yeah, they've been good to go. Um, the browns are in two-by-twos, and... I don't see them often, but when I do, they're tracking around and they're looking really healthy. The reds, 
because they're babies, I still have them in shoe boxes, you know, six quarts, and that's more than enough space for them right now. Once they get bigger, they'll go in their own two by two. What is sexual maturity? Or do you not know? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> when they stop growing. So yeah, when, when they stop growing, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, they grow, when you feed them, they grow fast. But the problem is they also grow out as well as long. So I have had to learn, you know, again with, I knew that they had to be seasonal feeders because they're egg eaters. But it also seems like they're really good at converting food into growth. So I'm next year, I will probably only feed like one egg every other week, even during their most active time to keep them from getting just too big. fat slugs. Right. So, I mean, you're, you're, it's pretty essential to have a, like kind of a feast and a famine. I think it is, you know, I, I kind of subscribe to that for my snakes. I do that with just about everything I have. I've got an African egg eater. I do the same thing. And I've, kind of become unpopular along of among a lot of the egg eater people because I keep telling them this. Your snake is fat, quit feeding it. I feed from, you know, April to August. And then my egg eater just has to starve the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could go in I could go into the room right now and I guarantee you she'd be sitting in her cage, wrapped up in the nest where I drop the eggs, just looking at me, wanting an egg. But she's got great body weight. She doesn't need it. And I'm not going to just keep cramming her full of eggs because she wants them. I don't think it's healthy to make them these fat, obese things. And I have no basis behind this, but in my head, in the wild, they would not have access to eggs at all time of the year. In my right. head, the and animals that's... that they're eating from are not dropping eggs 24 seven all the time. Like it's not like a knolls or something like that, where there's always that around there. Eggs are much, you know, more of a scarce food item. Yeah, they, right. they, there, there's a boom season and a bust season. Right. You know, it's, you know, it's like the the island boas. Those island boas, they get a couple of months where the birds come into those islands and nest, and the boas pig out at that time. But then, like eight, nine months out of the year, they're just sitting there, living off of the reserves from the two to three months that they've crammed themselves full. And that's how I feel, you know. That's how the African egg eater is, and that's how I think the kukris need to be. Just, you know, a couple, three, four months of food, and then the rest of the year off. And do you see any change in behavior from, you know, seasoned from when they're feeding heavy to when they're not? Mm, Not as much. I mean, my African egg eater, I've had her five, yeah, five years now. And... With her, I do see a little bit more. She becomes less active in the winter months. Um, but, I mean, like I said, right now, she still is out and crawling about and looking for food. And it's just because she's a glutton and she would eat if I gave her the chance to. Um, but, you know, I've decided that it's September now and that means no more food. <laughs> because I don't want you getting fat. You know, come November, December... Odds are, any night that I go in there, she'll just be curled up in her hide at any given time because she's turned herself off. And what's kind of the uh, origin story of your love for the egg eaters? You know, (laughs) all those nature shows where they show the egg eaters swallow the egg whole 
Yeah, that's like and one that everyone I saw needs that and I was see. like, oh, fuck, I need that. And so I went out and I got that. <laughs> but that's a that's a similar situation, right? There's not many captive breeding, not much captive breeding going on. Um, there's not a lot of captive breeding of egg eaters. Um, I, by fluke, had a captive breeding my is like right when I got mine. And it's because I had them paired together in a cage because they can live communally um, assuming the cage is big enough and I had a very large cage for them and I did not realize that the female was gravid and she dropped a clutch of six eggs and I didn't know about it because she hid them very well and I was in cleaning and doing snake stuff and I kept seeing this flicker of motion out of the corner of my eye in the cage and I couldn't figure out what it was so I stopped and I sat and looked for a while and I realized that there were five little babies no, just wait, crawling around in there. Wait, she had laid them. She laid the eggs. She hid the eggs. The eggs incubated and hatched in the cage without me knowing. Yeah. What? <laughs> so did they? Do they actually like bury their eggs? Or no? She just. I. I have a bunch of hides for them because you know. Again, this is the thing I like. I a lot of my animals I have in cages and tanks and stuff, and they're set up not fully bioactive, but as naturalistic as I can be. And part of that naturalistic environment is a lot of cages, is a lot of hides. So I had six hides in that cage. And, you know, I try to leave my animals alone as much as possible. So I wasn't just going to go flipping hides every time I wanted to find her. So she laid them in one of the hides and I just had no clue. And the, there's no risk of the male going and eating those eggs? No, he, he left them alone. Wow. So how, I mean, I didn't know that. I feel like we know, I feel like we would see something uh, about you posting about having these babies. When did this happen? It was 2015, 2016. Yeah, before you were friends with me. <laughs> Did not know. If we go back and stalk your Instagram, is there a post about it? <laughs> uh, there might be in the very, very, very beginning of my Instagram. So out of those, you're five gonna babies, have to go deep to find it. <laughs> out of those five babies, do you still have any of them? I don't. Um, so the babies are extremely, extremely, extremely sensitive to dehydration. I was not even aware of how fast they could dehydrate. Mm. I went away for a long weekend and their water bowl dried out and they all died. Mm. So kick myself and learn my lesson. Oh, it's like, oh, don't have to do shit for the eggs. They're fine. Oh, but once they come out. Yeah, once they come out, you got to be on the ball all the time. Yeah. Wow. So is that is that anything to think about with the adults as well? The adults seem to be fine. I mean, you know, I do have larger water bowls in their cages and I had the babies in tubs with, you know, just the little small water bowls. So in the future, if I get pairings again, um, I would probably do larger bowls. I would also probably do, you know, I might set the babies up in smaller naturalistic vivs, like a 10 that has a higher humidity because it would have plants and soil and leaf litter and stuff in it to help retain moisture and keep the babies hydrated. And has that never reoccurred? I mean, have you had the same pair together? I, no, I haven't. Uh, I, my male, I ended up losing him 
So, and was that kind of like out of the blue? Yeah. Mm. And I think that may have been just because it, it, even though I had them in a large cage, I think the female was still over dominating him and getting more food than he was. So he ended up struggling. And because I was leaving them alone so much, I didn't realize it until it got, it was too late and he just crashed. So again, a lesson learned, but you know, would I keep them communally again? If I got them, if I got a male, yes, but I would be more attentive. Um, I may even go so far as to separate them on feeding days just to make sure that they were eating. Right. And do you, did you at least get an idea of when these things breed and stuff like that? If no, because it it just happened. It surprised yeah. the shit out of me. So, <laughs> well, I guess yeah, because I guess you don't really know how long the eggs take and everything that was going on. And right, damn, just appeared. <laughs> so, is... do you plan on getting another male anytime soon? I've considered it, um, but. The pain in the ass thing with egg eater babies is unless you can source finch eggs, you have to tube feed them. Oh, God. And that's a huge pain in the ass because you're dealing with something that's a maybe, maybe two thirds the size of a corn snake hatchling. What? Yeah, they're I super tiny. I didn't, I didn't think it could get smaller. They're super tiny. Like, think a baby ringneck snake. I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking yeah, like, snakes are like here. They're like, yeah, they're maybe this long, really thin, really slender. And they, they're super fragile too. Their bones are really easy, really prone to breaking and damage. So you have to be very gentle with them. And the slightest trauma when they're young can lead to kinking in their how spines they, when they become older. So how do they survive in the wild? Well, they're in an area where wild finches breed, so the babies, you know, <laughs> can get a hold of finch eggs and stuff. <laughs> but I'm tree, like, right, right. right. Really you might, them. right. I'm like, I feel like they can't even go out to get the finch eggs because well, something, a wind is going to blow and they're going to die. <laughs> like, yeah, and I think they're okay. Um, by and large, I think, and again, I I have made a lot of not so much friends in the egg eater groups because of my outspokenness. Like I have told them that they are, um, they should be dealt with as an arboreal type animal. Most people keep them, you know, terrestrially and in shoeboxes and stuff or in low cages, and I keep my girl in a uh, thirty-seven tall. Because, you know, again, stop and think about what these things eat. They eat bird birds. eggs. And birds, live birds in don't sky. really tend to, don't tend to nest on the ground. They tend to live in trees. Um, so I think these animals are at least partially arboreal. And they really love, I mean, I, a bunch of the hides that I have are those enclosed finch nests. And that's where my girl stays. I mean, 95% of the time she's in one of those. It's rare that I find her in one of her terrestrial heights. She's always up in the air, always. And my guess is that the babies might, you know, a lot of the finches 
in Africa and stuff, they build these really intricate nests. The babies might just live in Mm -hmm. and among those and be, you know, their thicker grass and stuff. They might be living in between the layers and they sneak out and grab an egg and then sneak back in. Yeah, and, and so that's how they can survive, you know, rattle bones from yeah all the other things that could kill it and break it. That's Imagine people like, what's that bird that uh, they go and the they lay they yeah. lay their eggs in a bird's nest so that a cuckoo hatch a cuckoo. Yeah, those things are cuckoo. Wait, what do they do? The cuckoo bird comes in, it finds a nest, it eats one of the eggs out of the nest and then lays its own egg in the nest. Then the mother bird comes back and sits on the eggs. The cuckoo egg hatches out first, throws the other eggs out of the nest, or if the other eggs hatch first, when the cuckoo baby hatches, it throws the other babies out of the nest. And then the, you know, say it's a robin, the robin comes and feeds the cuckoo baby. (gasps) Because that's all that's left. Because that's all that's left. And it hatched out of an egg in their nest. So they just assume it's their baby. And they just keep feeding it and feeding it and feeding it until it's old enough to get up and go away. And then it gets up and goes away and the cycle repeats. And so cuckoo moms don't give a shit about their babies. Nope. Or they ultimately... Give them the most shit because they want. So they're giving yeah. them. They, they're giving them. They're giving them a nanny to raise their baby <laughs> instead of raising it themselves. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. How did I not know that? It's been too many That's years like, going through life that I didn't know that. Such a crazy evolutionary thing that I couldn't believe how that. So they're really out. smart then. I mean, you can call it that way, or you can look at it as a form of parasitism at the highest level (laughs) real scummy birds brood parasitism yeah (laughs) they're assholes no but that's i mean that's super cool but i mean this is something you wouldn't expect out of a bird you know what i also want to expect Someone who keeps kukris and these other egg eater snakes to like also do ball pythons. So what you're doing <laughs> is you're making the stereotype of ball python people to be people who don't like cool things, which is a common thing for. I didn't say cool. That was your yeah. words. I was thinking more rare. <laughs> you said cool. <laughs> I I don't keep ball. Well, okay, maybe no. <laughs> I don't want to say I don't keep ball pythons for the reasons other people keep ball pythons. I mean, I kind of do, but I don't. I keep ball pythons because there's a lot of mutations. Yes, but okay. I'm not doing it because I'm looking to make a buck on the mutations. I like the the mutations because I'm a geneticist and playing with genetics is just fun for me. And, and the kukri and the other ones don't give you that thrill. Well, they would. They'll give me that thrill eventually as a breeder, but I want something that I can play with. In the meantime, while I'm growing these things up, while I'm getting them used to my conditions, while I'm, you know, getting everything right and in place set for them. Yeah, they're your flashy you know, mistress, and the other ones are your wife. If you want to put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it seems like. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why my brain went there. I'm thinking of like, you know, you're talking about this egg eater group and I just, how many people have egg eaters? Not a lot. I mean, 
I got a lot of weird stuff just for the sake of having weird things. You know, the egg eaters, the kukris, the beak snakes, the rubber boas. Okay, oh, back it up, back it up, back yeah. it up, back it up. <laughs> Don't know what that is. Backing <laughs> up, backing up, backing up. Which which one am I backing up on? Beak. The beak snakes? <laughs> Ramphiophis? You know, you know Ramphiophis. Howard's got them. Howard's got them. Um, Howard's got the reds. I have uh, Oxyrhynchus, which are... They they don't have the bright redhead, but they do have an overall sort of orange pink tone to them, along the whole length of their body. Uh, they are, no, they're what they basically are is a an African version of a Western Coach Whip. They're are they very visual? Active. Yeah, they're very visual. Um, mine, you know, they will pop out. They they run along with their head up, looking around at things just the way a Coach Whip does. You know, when they are interested in something, they come over and check it out. When I come into the room and they're active, they all they all come right up to the front of the glass and they look around at me. So. And did you find these at shows? Like, are they? Yeah, I found these at the same show. I found the kukri. Um, you know, they're imports. I got them as baby imports. And um, again, I'm growing them up. It'll take however long it takes to grow them up, and then I'll give them a try breeding, which. Not a lot of people have been successful breeding them in captivity. Um, I don't know anybody who's gotten Oxyrhynchus to breed in captivity. I know one person who's bred Restrata, and I've talked with her a lot. I know that there have been a couple of people who've got the Rubipunctus that Howard's keeping to breed, but you know, it's it's not a hugely popular species. It's just kind of a little niche thing. Um, you know, part of the reason people have had problems is because it's real hard to know your males from your females. Uh, mm. These are not like, you know, they don't pop easy. They're not like hog nose where you can just flip them over and tell, well, this one's got a stumpy tail and this one doesn't. This is my male. This is my female. About a third of their length is the vent to the tail in both the males mm. and the females. And so it's traditionally been rather hard to tell what they are. Um, Again, I sent sheds into Ben. Ben's tests indicate that I have a 1.1. So once they grow up enough and I can put that to the test, I'll know for sure. Have you tried to probe them? I'm just curious with a tail that long. I have not. Um, I haven't felt comfortable trying to probe something like that because it's, you know, it's a squirrely thing to test. And they are also, you know, kind of like you know, bloods and carpets can be where the females can probe deep and they just fake you out by probing deep. You know, the the best way that I have heard to sex them prior to Ben coming out was you just put your animals together and if one of them pops out eggs, then you know you had a female. <laughs> can you house these together? Or no? Yeah. Um, I don't house mine together, um, but that's because of the size of the cages that I have them in I as they get larger I will be upgrading them to larger cages but I do know somebody who keeps pairs in uh two by two by six cages and how do you facilitate that active nature I give them a lot of space you know I've got them in two by threes right now and you know they're only about a foot long maybe 18 inches long right now so they've got a lot of space and it's a 30 deep cage so or a, sorry a two deep a two by two by you know 36 by two by two it gives them a lot of space um 
and I give them vertical space and horizontal space. I've got branches in there. They climb, they crawl around, they do all kinds of stuff. And are they typically active? They're mostly diurnal. Um, you know, they, I'll occasionally see them like right after lights out. Most of the time they're just out during the day. And they're feeding readily on rodents. They feed readily on rodents. Um, they will also take quail, you know, little baby hatchling quail. Um, I've gotten a couple of them. I've gotten both of them to take reptilinks on a couple of occasions. They tend to be pretty open to eating whatever they want to eat. Okay. At least that's easy. And temperature wise? Um, they like higher temps. Um, with them, I actually give them a real high hotspot because they're so active. Uh, hotspot is about 92. They're from Africa, correct? They are, yes. Damn, so you keep them, I mean, that's a Kaluber that you keep more so like a hot python. Yeah, well, like I said, I keep I keep it like I would keep a coach whip. You know, a real good hot basking spot, give them a lot of room to roam. And coach whips... Every indication with coach whips is that they don't really take to captivity very well because they will face bash. These guys don't face bash so much. They, I mean, they'll explore and they'll crawl along, but they won't try to break out and force and rub themselves raw and make themselves neurotic. So they have that appeal to me. I would love to keep a coach whip, but I, I can't abide by doing that, knowing how prone they are to just messing themselves up. And do they? Do they get as big as a coach whip, or they stay a little bit smaller? They get about four feet long. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, they're a fa- they're un- I mean, they're a slender-bodied snake. Right. Right. They're not as robust as a coach whip is. And how are you going to go about, or when do you think uh, they're going to reach maturity? Do you have any idea? Mm, no clue. <laughs> wow, you really love living on the edge there. I do. You know. They'll reach maturity when they reach maturity. You know, when they get up to three, four feet long, then maybe I'll consider sticking them together and see what they do. Right. Any uh, seasonal things going on with these? Um, I keep them seasonally too. Uh, They have a more extreme monsoon type season, you know, higher temps, lots of moisture and humidity. Then it drops down to cooler, drier. So I'll cool them down. I'll dry them out. Um, you know, not drastically cold, but upper seventies. Um, I will still give them the hot spot during the day, but it's a shorter period of time that I give them the hot spot, and then let them drop down at night. So Melissa's looking up right now <laughs> on buying beak snake venom. I'm sorry. It's only eleven hundred dollars a gram. Well, that's okay. So <laughs> they are rear fanged. Um, there haven't been any seriously detrimental cases that I have been able to find, but the studies on the toxin does indicate that it can be pretty potent. Um, I do not let either of my children handle them and I am extremely cautious when I am working with them. Um, I don't think they're quite the level of a boom slang or I would not keep them, but I know people who've taken a hit 
and you know their hand swells up basically like you've seen with hognose and stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think I think this is another one of those situations in the hobby where you just have to be aware of what you're doing and what you're working with. Um, you know, I think treating hognose like they're completely harmless is a little bit of a foolish venture. I think you have to know that you are getting something that you could have a medically significant reaction to. Um, but they're not marked as venomous. They're not marked as venomous at, at trade. You know, but hognose aren't marked as venomous at trade right. shows either. because, And that's because of the inertia of the hobby. For so long, everybody was like, well, they're not really venomous. And then they're rear fanged, but it's only like a bee sting. And you know that's a true statement. It is like a bee sting in as much as, no, it's not the same venom as a bee. But it's like a bee sting in most people can get stung by a bee. It hurts, it might swell up, but it's not a problem. But there is a part of the population where you get stung by a bee and it is a life-threatening situation. And that's how it is with hognose. Um, You know, a lot of people are fine. They can get bit by a hognose and it's not an extreme event. But there are some people out there who react badly to them. Um, I'm certain that that would be the case with the Ranthiophis. It is not my intention to test that out. I try and do... You know, I'm very, I'm very much more on point when I am working with them. Do you know if there's a crossover between people who are, you know, say sensitive to a thing like a bee sting to a thing like a hog nose bite? <clears throat> Maybe. <laughs> um, usually it's a type of allergic response. Now... You can be allergic to a lot of things and still not have allergies to other things. I'm kind of a prime case of that. I have allergies to so many things. But at the same, like, I don't have any food. Well, I can't say I don't have any food allergies. I have one food allergy now, but that's the side effect. Yeah. That's a side effect of. (laughs) Of something else. Yeah, of something else. Um, But like, you know, I can eat eggs. I can eat strawberries. I can eat wheat, milk. I can do all of that and I'm fine. But I am allergic to cats, rodents, pollens, molds, trees, grass, you name it. But you can be outside. (laughs) Yeah, I can be outside. You know, but, you know, in a strange twist, I'm also allergic to allergy medicine. Uh, So the only thing that works for me is Benadryl. Oh, I'm not just supposed to be asleep. Yeah, and that knocks me down, so I try not to take it. I can use the nasal spray things, and so that's what I have to use during, like, you know, peak pollen season, just to be able to breathe. So, okay, say, like, carpet fast. We're in, there's trees, stuff like that, like, you're outside for an extended period of time. Do yeah, and I was, and I was, I was fine then, you know, I, because okay. I was using my, you know, my nasal stuff for you know the months leading up to that every day oh, gosh. okay <laughs> you know and i'm okay you know it's not like i fall over and die but when the pollen is really bad my nose will get stuffed up my eyes will get really watery and itchy um a lot of times i have to just wear my glasses all the time and i can't wear my contacts because my eyes get so sensitive and wow. does that affect you at all as far as feeding rodents it can. Um, I wear gloves all the time now when I'm feeding with my rodents. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have the luxury of being able to raise my own rodents because I can't be around them that much. Um, I had a guy 
when I was living in a different town a couple years ago, I'd just swing by his place because he was raising rats and I'd go into his rat room and I'd get what I needed and I'd leave the money and go home. And I did that two times and I was fine. And then the third time I went over there, I got in the car and started driving. And five minutes later, I had a full-blown asthma attack and I had to pull over and suck on my inhaler and then go into a CVS and get Benadryl (laughs) to stop the reaction. Um, And then every other time I went over there, I had to put on a respirator mask to go into his rat barn and pick up my rats. Wow. So is ball pythons the fact that, I mean, sometimes you got to feed live, especially for babies. I mean, is that a serious detractor? It's not a serious detractor. I mean, I can deal with it. You know, I, I pick up live hopper mice for my babies, you know, but I get them in one of those rodent carriers. It goes in the trunk of the car and I'm in the front of the car. I drive home. I put on gloves when I pick up the rodent carrier out of the trunk. I bring it downstairs. I use forceps to pick up the mice or the rats and throw them into the tubs. Hmm. And then, yeah. And, you know, cautious about it. Yeah. You know, I don't go rubbing the rats on my face (laughs) because, one, that would be gross. And two, it would cause me to have an asthma attack and I don't want to do that. But you're not allergic to anything that, um... Maybe injected into you. Like I don't know. I'm not. I'm not allergic to bees. I have been stung by bees on numerous occasions, and I've never had a problem with it. Okay. You know, I haven't been bitten by the hog nose, so I don't know. I don't want to put it to the test. I haven't been bitten by the ramphiophis. I don't want to put it to the test. I also have an entire a pack of Benadryl sitting in my snake room. So if I ever do take a hit, the first thing I will do is just start popping Benadryl. Because I don't want to run the risk. Typically to people who even just have a regular hognose bite? Because um, I don't know. I feel like hognose breeders, like this should be something that they tell someone or should, you know, like educate people on. But I, mean, I, I don't know that anybody says it as a regular thing. I also don't think it's the end all be all. I have it because I know that it'll work in a quick situation as an antihistamine for me. And it'll help keep an allergic reaction in control long enough for me to get a hold of an inhaler and to get myself to a hospital or to get somebody to get me to a hospital if I'm having a really bad reaction. But it's not going to be a situation of, oh, I just took a bite from a potentially rear fanged, highly, you know, unknown venomous snake. I'm just going to take a couple Benadryl and then go to bed. That That's not the logic that I take on it. It's just my quick fix to get me through the next 15 to 20 minutes until I can get to a doctor and be observed. Gotcha. So what exactly does being careful with the uh, with the beak snakes mean for you? What it means for me is if I feel that I'm even slightly off game, I'm not even going to open the cage. Um, I use a short hook to find them if I need to find them rather than sticking my fingers in. You know, I use 16 inch forceps when I feed again so that I have distance on them. Um, if they're racing around, I'm probably not going to open the cage because the last thing I want is for them to jump out of the cage and me have to catch them in midair and have them feel threatened and turn around and bite me because of it. Right. Um, when I do handle them, it's, you know, I make sure that they're in a calm enough mode and I let them go where they want, but I also try and keep them, you know, 
constantly with their head faced away from me so that it's, you know, not that it's unheard of that they could just turn around, but at least if their head's facing away, I've got at least a half a second behind me if they start to turn that I can try and redirect them. Um, I don't restrain them because I don't want them feeling threatened like they have to bite me. And they have a really good disposition. They're not really temperamental for the most part. But again, if if there's anything slightly off with how they're behaving or how I'm feeling, I'm not even going to open the cage. Well, at least they don't have that one coach whip behavior. Yeah, they don't have the just turn and bite you because. <laughs> yeah, that's always good. So another thing that you have, and something that I really love, and something that Melissa thinks is just a weird worm, is the uh, rubber boas. The rubber boas? The rubber boas? called rubber boas. And, I mean, you, I've seen them with them just on your finger, just hanging out. Yeah. Well, here I can I can go grab them right now. They're right behind me. Yeah, I would love to. Okay, them right there. That worm. <laughs> that worm. Okay, we can ask. I can ask some <sighs> questions. I've been nervous to ask him. Okay, so like, <laughs> when like a hog nose would bite you? Yeah. Like what? When they're like venom? I know for like legit venomous stuff, we talk about the two different types, which I can't ever remember their names, but you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But like. Hognose, it's not a type since it's not actually venom. It doesn't fall into one of those two categories, right? And the two categories are like about neurotoxin versus hemotop, right? Like what? What? Like a which we're we're learning now with more research. You know, there's a lot of mixture between. So it's so like what would hognose like fall? You know, like where would it fall, and what actually happens in your bloodstream and all that? I would imagine it's hemotoxic, but I don't. I don't know. So it wasn't a true dumb question. Oh no, I don't know. I don't oh, know. okay. Which yeah, one are we asking you, about? You're the not your sense of smell, or your your sense of uh, your sight, or anything from a hog nose bite. So I'm guessing it has some type of hemotoxic. Uh, I think the hogs have got a cytotoxin. I think I could be mistaken. So this is the male. The female and is hiding right brown? now. Brown, or is it just? Yeah. Yes, it's brown. It's beige. Color, so it's a brown worm. It's a brown worm. Yes. Worms are typically pretty brown. So that's an adult. No, uh, he's three years old. It's pretty well, brown. So small. how long does it do they yeah. take to mature? They take five to six years to mature. Um, they are sexually dimorphic. The males are about half the size of the females. So my female is, yeah, she's about twice as long as him. She's a little bit thicker than my index finger. Okay, possible. This guy's dumb question. fat right now because he's got three pinky mice in him. So possible dumb question. Mm -hmm. I call them worms because they, to me, like look different than other snakes. Mm -hmm. Is their skeletal structure different than other snakes? Not particularly. I mean. And why the hell do they look like worms? Their tail is just this little blunt end thing. Missing something here. <laughs> like I feel there's like no neck uh, yeah, like I feel like there's they don't they're missing a neck bone. <laughs> oh, they've got a neck. It's just no. They're like those guys you see where they're all big and then it just goes from head to body. That's <laughs> And that creeps you. Men who don't have necks. Oh, <laughs> 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 
but yeah, those it's men both. Men. It's both. <laughs> they both creep me out. <laughs> but see, okay, wait in there. That's why I was no question. To me, they seem like there's something skeletally different. No, I mean, like I said, the only skeletally different thing would be their tail. It just doesn't come to a point. It's just a little blunt end thing. So but, snakes have one more like little bone piece there. Yeah, it just would end in a little blunt end. Worm. You can see that's the tail, and it looks very much like the head, and that's an adaptive trait that they have. When you like startle them, they tuck their head down and they stick their tail up, and their tail can get attacked and hopefully uh, leave their head. Good little defense mechanism. Yep. Or as Melissa says, it looks like a penis. I whispered it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know <laughs> Yeah, but Joe, Joe decided he had to out you, so. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you can hear it, like, really low. In Travis didn't hear it. I, w- I was just letting it slide. I did hear you. Oh. <laughs> you definitely didn't say that quiet enough. <laughs> well, now I know. I have to whisper it even quieter if I want to say it. If I can hear it, chances are everyone else can hear You're it. You're saying two inches away. Yeah, but the mic's closer to you. Than okay. okay. Um, wait, shoot. Okay. Is there... I don't know. Is everything else the same? <laughs> like... Well, their their keeping is totally different. Oh, right? I meant like body, yeah. like cloaca stuff. Yeah, their their cloaca is the same. It's right there. Normal snake cloaca. How is it not normal? Oh no, this looks so wormy. <laughs> okay, what is your interest to these? They're not rare. They're not potentially going to kill you. They're not pretty like ball pythons. What's the what's the pull? I I don't know. They're just one of these things that I've always had a fascination with. Um, you know, when I was really young and I got the Audubon Society Field Guide to North American Reptiles and Amphibians, I was paging through it. I saw the rubber boa and I said, that's cool. I want one. And so years later, I went out and decided, you know what? I can get one of these now. I actually have the ability to do that. I picked up a pair of them. And how often, because I mean, I see, I see babies go up every once in a while, but not very often. So. You kind of have to look. Um, I was looking for a couple of years before I found these guys. And I just kind of chanced into someone, some, I was, you know, somebody that I follow on Instagram posted up a picture of, you know, like you said, the babies wrapped around his fingers. And I dropped him a message. I said, do you have any for sale? He said, yes. I said, okay, how much? He said, X. I said, I said, give me your PayPal and I'll have it to you. And just like that. <laughs> and now that's obviously still a small snake, but as babies, do they readily take pinkies as well? Yeah, as babies, they will take pinkies. Um, they are nest raiders by nature. So they are really good at taking down baby pinks and baby you know, baby voles and baby shrews and things in the wild. Um, and they will glut if you give them the chance. And you know, again, it's kind of a seasonal thing. They pig out, they eat for a few months, and then brumation comes and they just go down. Mm. And now keeping-wise, uh, what's the keeping like? 
Um, keeping is dead easy. They like to be kept at room temperature. If you get them over 85 degrees or so, they do very poorly. And now, how often are you feeding an animal like that? I feed them pretty heavily. Um, May, June, July, August. And they tend to turn themselves off about this time of year. Um, this is a, this week is actually the first time this guy has eaten since the end of July. So is that he just ate. Yeah, by choice. I mean, I, I have offered him food every week. And he just doesn't take them. And this week he finally decided and he ate three. His fourth one is still in there. It's been in there since Sunday. So I guess he's just not going to eat it. And that's fine because you can see he's pretty fat in his stomach. So. And that's something where when you do get that feeding response, you kind of you go with it. Because yeah. You if, you, when, when they want to feed, you let them feed because when they turn off, they turn off. Um, I expect that by the end of the month, maybe I might be able to get them through to October, depending on what temperatures are like here. You know, as long as the basement's heating up to, you know, mid seventies, they'll probably eat. But once it starts dipping down at night and it gets cool enough in here, they'll just turn off. Wow. So you must only be feeding these like a little bit over like a dozen rodents a year or something for that. Guy. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, they get about a dozen, 18, maybe. The female's probably up to about 18. She eats a lot more. But again, she's twice the size of this guy, so. When is there, like, a reason for concern? For them not eating? Yeah. When they look like they're skeletally thin and dying. Just but, like other ones. Yeah. You know. But it's just an, it's just an animal that. It's just an animal that, you know, they, they're they're programmed to glut and famine. And so they will glut and then they will famine. And, you know, in the wild, they live, you know, at the Pacific Northwest and, you know, Idaho, Montana. So they're used to being down for up to six months out of the year in their brumation. So. What's your Latin name? Random question. The Latin name for these? Mm -hmm. Chariana. Oh, not what I thought. Okay. And are they, they are true boas or? Yeah, they're the, they and the rosy boas are the only North American or uni only United States boas. And they give live birth and all that good they stuff. They give live birth and all that good stuff. Do you like rosy boas too or only these? I don't like rosy boas. <laughs> and, you know. Okay. <laughs> No, it doesn't make sense because no. they're little pink and gray worms too, but I think a little bit more active. Crazy pink gray worms. Yeah, but he yeah. likes that. They're also bitey little shits. These guys don't bite. <laughs> that's, that's what I meant by active. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I can see the disposition on that one. I mean, nothing. I mean, could that snake even like bite you if it wanted to? Right. It probably could, but in all of the years that I've been keeping snakes and looking for these, I have heard of one case of somebody being bitten. 
And I think that was an overzealous female. The guy had the pinks in his hand and was dropping them into the food bowl. And the female got excited and went for his hand as he was dropping the baby mice out of his hand. Gotcha. So it looks like there's a there's a range of like red individuals, almost pinkish individuals to like olive drab individuals. So when the babies are born out, they're very pinky flesh tone. And then they start to darken up and turn brown, olive, chocolate as they age. Um, I caught one in the wild in Idaho about five, six years back. And she was a very vibrant olive green with a bright yellow belly. Um, they do seem to have population effects. You know, you hear a lot about the Idaho ones being gr- that olive green color. Um, you know, there are some ranges where they're that darker chocolate brown. I've heard of black ones. But yeah, they're all just variations on a theme of earth tone. A black worm seems a little bit more interesting. You <laughs> <laughs> don't see are those <laughs> out there too, too much. Are there restrictions all throughout the range, or is it? Because I know in California, I believe you can't keep them. Or there are restrictions through most of the states that have them. Yeah, in California, I think you can get a permit to collect and keep, but you're only allowed to do that with one. You're not allowed to breed it. You're not allowed to sell it. It's not allowed to be for commercial purposes. Um, I know that in Washington, they have very tight regulations. Oregon, you're allowed a permit to collect, I believe. In Montana, you're allowed to keep up to three, but again, you can't keep them for commercial purposes. I don't know what Idaho is. I'm surprised you know all those. (laughs) Well, it comes with trying to find them because, you know, I have a lot of friends out West, but, you know, I can't be like, hey, dude, go out and hunt these down and send them to me because, you know, I want you to get in trouble with Park Service. (laughs) You know, it's, you know, I have asked around local, you know, people who live in their range, you know, do you know anybody that has them, Mm -hmm. has, you know, legally been able to, breed and export from the state and most of the people were like no because the hoops you have to jump jump through to do that are so extreme that nobody local really wants to do it so you have to generally find people who aren't in the states that they're from to get a hold of them is there any like locale that people prefer over another not really um there are it depends on who you talk to some people say there are two species some people say that there are simply a subspecies, two subspecies of them. Um, there is, I think it's a subspecies in California that is dwarf. Um, some people are interested in that merely because it's a dwarf, and so it's a morph. But even then, it's not a huge thing. What is what is the difference between you know California individual lengthwise? Um, they're instead of the females being three feet they're like two feet so it's not a huge huge difference that's why dwarf (laughs) (laughs) it's not like the dwarf retic thing right and do you plan on breeding these in the future yeah when they get up to size i will probably breed them and is that something to wear i know a lot of bows especially boas like this i mean have 
large, I mean, gestations, long gestations? These don't tend to have a super long gestation. Um, they'll, you know, you can, they will occasionally breed during brumation or right when they come out of brumation, but then they drop the babies usually by August, September. So, you know, it's a 90, 100 day type of thing, but. Is that something, would you consider, you know, brumating them together? Yeah. Um, I do brumate them together. It's just easier. <laughs> and have you brumated them from, you know, from babies? Yeah, I have brumated them since I got them. Um, I believe it's healthier for them to go through that seasonal cycle than to just push them all the time. Plus, because they just turn off food. And if they're turned off of food, then I don't see the point in keeping them hotter, forcing them to burn through their reserves. If they want to be off food and cool down, then I'm going to let them do that. And is that typical, like how we would brewmate colubrids, 50 to 55? Or? Um, I've taken them even lower. So I have an uninsulated closet that has my sump pump down here. And I just put them in one of those large deli cups full of damp sphagnum. And stick them in there and it has gotten down to 40 degrees in there and they don't seem to care. And damn, does that sound easy to put an animal just in a deli? Right. Yeah. I mean, I have to say they do look like worms, but they seem pretty darn easy. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're super easy. As long it's as it's nice to have something that I don't have to worry about heat tape and a thermostat and you know, just a light and they're good. Oh, so you you keep a light over them, or yeah? So that that's their cage. It's got a lot of condensation on it right now, but it's a it's a fully bioactive, naturalistic setup. It's got playroom. It's got logs and moss and branches and. Are you plants. doing isopod springtails as well? Um, yeah, there's isopods and springtails. I also have a bunch of millipedes in there just native millipedes that I dug up when I was digging up leaf mold and tossed in there. And they just, you know, help keep, keep everything cleaned up. And so I've also never really not, heard of anyone yeah. using millipedes. Also, before. you're not worried about like, I don't know, bringing outside. bringing outside in. No, not really. Do you think that that's something, I mean, as someone who probably knows more about that than most, mm -hmm. is that more overblown than it should be? It depends on what it is you're talking about. Um, if if you're out herping in an area that like SFD is endemic in, I would be more careful about bringing stuff like that in. Um, so that's snake fungal snake disease. fungal disease. Sorry, yeah, acronyms. I'm really bad at using them and not clarifying them. Um, but I do think that there is a tendency to keep our animals over sterile, which I think is actually a little bit of a detriment to the hobby because when your animals are over sterile, then anything, even something minor can blow up to become a major infection. Um, I mean, basically for lack of a better term, you're keeping them immunocompromised because you're never exposing them to anything. 
And so because they're never exposed to anything, they're hypersensitive to everything. Just like babies. Yes. You know, keep them too clean. You keep them too clean and they're more likely to get sick and sick worse. Right. Whenever they do get exposed to anything, even a common cold, you know, a common cold among a baby that's just been kept sterile the whole time is so much worse than, you know, let your kid go out and get licked by the dog and roll around in the dirt and stick rocks in their mouth because it's good for them. Really. Dirt and leaves and stick rolly polies up their nose. Yeah. yeah. And awfully specific. Yeah. <laughs> it's here. Unfortunately. You stuck a roly poly up your oh, nose? No, no. Not my experience with children. There you go. Isopods. Mm, yeah. Clean out all the insides of the child. <laughs> What is like the balance there between cleanliness and, I guess, dirtiness? <laughs> I was like thinking of a better word for that. Um, I mean, I wouldn't let them dwell in complete filth. Um, you know, I try to pull out their sheds when I find them, but if I miss them or if I miss part of it, you know, the isopods, the millipedes, they're going to eat it. Um, you know, if I were to consistently see lots and lots of sheds in there because I wasn't picking them up, I'm sure that would lead to a bloom of potentially something that could make them sick. But, you know, if you are in tune with your animals and you're in tune with your setups, I think you can tell when your setup is healthy, when your animals are healthy. You know, I have mushrooms that occasionally pop up in my tanks. I was literally just about to ask you that because my Amazon tank just sprung mushrooms. Really? Yeah. I, have, yeah. I have mushrooms that pop up in the rubber boa tank. I have mushrooms that pop up in the kukri tank. I have mushrooms that pop up or cage. I have mushrooms that pop up in the Ramphiopus cage. Um, and I don't stress it because they're, you know, it's not like constantly mushrooms. It'll just be one two every now and then. And you just like pick them and go on about your life? I don't even pick them. I just let them do their thing. Oh. Um, and I view that as kind of a good thing because it means that there's natural decomposers and stuff in there taking care of the garbage and stuff that's in there. And it what? lets it build up and take it down and build up and take it down. Is there dirt in the ATV well, like, thing? I, I, I know haven't... there's dirt in there. Honestly, like leaves. my plants... We're really having a tough time growing for quite a while. I mean, it's probably been like six months or so. They've just a tough time growing. But I put some sphagnum in there. I did a couple of different things. And I've seen, you know, that mushroom spring up. But also all my other plants are kind of springing up, which I just and, Yeah, and that's a helpful thing is what's probably happened was, you know, you had all those plants in there, but there weren't any fungus. The fungus gets among the roots. And it actually helps the plants take up nutrients and take up moisture and establish themselves better. And so now your plants are better able to thrive because they've got this symbiosis going on with the fungus. My brain doesn't like to think <laughs> the fact that we need fungus in our lives. I, it's, I know it's necessity, but it just... It's, it's, we need fungus, but we need the good funguses and not the bad funguses. And the nice thing is that the good funguses and the good bacteria and stuff, when they're present, they tend to keep the bad stuff in check and not from establishing. You know, if there's a void and a place that something can come in and live in, then the bad things are so much better at taking advantage of that that they jump in. 
But if you allow the good things to establish themselves, then there's no place for the bad things to come in. So by keeping the good things in and you keep a healthy balance, it's a lot harder for bad stuff to get established and take over and cause problems. I feel like that was a very uh, Melissa level explanation with the use of the good and the bad. I feel like if you explain that to a different person, you would have used not so much good and bad, but I liked it. <laughs> Beneficials versus <laughs> pathogenics. <I liked> <laughs> And speaking of that, I wanted to ask you, um, okay, so in our corn snake babies, we have aspen bedding, we have a little water bowl, whatever, they poop, they do all of that. When we're cleaning, occasionally we see the little wormy guys, and Joe says it's from humidity, and not that I don't think well, he is I smart, it is but I wanted to ask I wanted to ask you. Wormy guys. I need I need better clarification because wormy guys describes like eight hundred thousand different things. Little white maggots. Okay, those are probably fungus gnats. And are they bad and what you have fruit flies for anything. Yeah, we have But four, sometimes like there's no sometimes flies. there's no flies in there, but there's just the little and a lot of times I find them in the water bowl. Yeah, because they're stupid and they drown themselves. Those are probably the fungus gnat larvae. Okay, are they bad? They're not bad per se, but they can just be annoying because they're always around. Right. They, I mean, they, they are detritivores. They do eat, you know, they do eat crap and stuff. But the flip side is, I don't want to say that they're a beneficial per se because they can get out of hand and be problematic. Um, you know, if you have too many of them, the larvae themselves can almost become rather than eating the crap and the shed skins and stuff, they can become predatory and they can actually start attacking animals. Whoa. Um, That's something where, I mean, I see it happen in our, especially with our babies because every once in a while you like forget a pinky or something. Yeah. And that's, that's a great way you'll see it. Like as if you forget a pinky, those things will preferentially take over the pinky than rather than going after a little pile of snake crap. And they, you know, if there's enough of them, they will skeletonize a pinky in, you know, a handful of days. I've seen and it. also what I did see this year, which is something I've never seen before, is uh, one of the ball pythons we hatched. Um, since I, you know, I had them in the water and everything like that, like not in the water, but I had them in a very wet, you know, after they first got out of the egg, you know, wet paper towel. Wet paper towel, yeah. And the larvae got in there, and then they actually went to the umbilical. Where and then they start feeding on the umbilicus, yeah. Right. So and I've, I've seen that. Um, I have somebody, I never verified this, so I don't know if he was talking out of his ass, but he told me that he had a ball python hatchling. He was keeping it on wet paper towels initially. It got really kind of funky in there because he wasn't changing it enough. Fungus gnats went crazy when the animal finally shed. He put it on a drier substrate. But then he said that the animal just never really took off. And every time it took a shit, he said that there were maggots in the shit. And finally the animal died. And he said that when the animal died, he picked it up and it just like <gasps> its bowels let loose. And it was just full of maggots. No. So he's saying that it, they basically got inside of it and were living inside of the animal. And he thinks they killed it. Now, I think that may be a bit extreme and it's possibly more likely that the animal died and had been dead for a day or two before he found out and they got into it, but it's something to consider. 
But we. But if you keep your animals filthy, you kind of have to expect that something bad is going to happen. Don't keep your animals filthy. But is it okay? Wait, so many things happening in my brain right now. Um, with the ball python, it got in the thing with the eggs. So there was no well, live animal. Well, that's when it started because I had like I had like a you know an egg that was decomposing in there because an uh, egg went bad, oh, and depending on the timing and everything, I don't peel them off. But it seemed like, however that occurred, it somehow carried over to when it happened. And so when things when it they get established, yeah, they got established in the egg box because he had the egg that was rotting. Okay. And they were living off of, you know, the fungus and the crap and stuff that was coming off of the rotting egg. And then as soon as the babies hatched, they were right there as a source. They could have been crawling into those pipped eggs and eating the albumin and stuff that was in the eggs while the babies were in there. Yeah. And I've, I, have, I have heard that. I have seen that. I hope people don't think I'm a scumbag for that happening, but uh... no, I mean it happens to the best of us. It happens to you know, it happens to everyone. Like I said, I've I've seen it not because I was keeping eggs all together, but like I have taken the eggs when the babies hatch out, and I just throw them in my trash can. And if you know, trash day is four or five days later. You know, if I go to open the thing, then I'll have a whole bunch of fucking gnats come out because they got into the trash and they were living in the goo that was left in the eggs in the trash can. So how do we stop them in our little baby enclosures? Because it's not like there's well, a lot, I but it's... I feel like what I've been thinking I was about... asking Travis, not you. Well, uh, we can hear what Joe has to say, too. Because I can tell him whether or not it's a good idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking... Because it sucks, because obviously we need to house, you know, 150-plus babies. And so we're using takeout containers. And it seems that even if a water bowl spills in there, Everything happens so quickly because it's such a small container without, you know, adequate airflow. I just can't get enough airflow into it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like things just go so quickly. Right, because we're cleaning frequently. It's not like we're leaving it. but And it's, it's, it's a matter of just getting on top of it as fast as you can. But once they're there, it's harder to get on top of. And it's that way with anything. Like, you and know, it's so hard to see them in the Aspen. Leave a bowl of fruit up in your kitchen. And, you know, one day it's fine. Two days it's fine. Three days it's fine. Then it starts to rot a little bit. And, you know, these flies, they're programmed to find food when the slightest trace. So you may think your house is clean and then all of a sudden you've got an apple that turns south and you don't even realize it. And the next thing you know, you've got like a fucking cloud of fruit flies in your kitchen. And then even though you throw the apple away, you know, they're there and they're lurking. And then the next time you buy apples, they start, you know, heading over there immediately. And, you know, it, it can be a real vicious circle once they're in there. And obviously you can't just go spray in your entire snake room with bug spray because then you're going to be killing your animals too because the bug spray is toxic so it's it's a delicate balance of you know you clean as fast as you can you clean as much as you can um you know when you clean if you have an infestation starting we dump it take everything yeah dump everything put everything clean and then take that trash bag and take it outside and put it in the outside trash immediately don't leave it in your room overnight or whatever yeah Okay. You know, because getting it out of the cages is one thing, but if that food source is still in the room, then they're just all going to go hang out in the trash can. And then the next time a baby spills its water bowl, 
they're going to smell that there's something going on and they'll leave the trash can and jump over to that cage. And then you're just repeating the cycle over and over again. Yeah. And I'm hoping like we have a trash can with a top on it, but I may just completely throw it out. Yeah. Completely throw it out. Cause even a trash can with a top on it doesn't matter. That's like, that's what I've got. And like I said, when I've been lazy and I haven't taken the trash out, even though I've thrown an egg in there, they get in there because it's not like a hermetically sealed top. It's just a thing that flops down and they can still sneak in and find a way in. And that's something that, uh, that's been so persistent here in PA than it was in Texas. This we have really way happen. more fruit flies in PA um, than Texas. Colorado like, bugs barely exist, so that was nice. But we, I mean, two hundred percent times it here in PA than in Dallas. And our, and our humidity is often very high in this house. It's just a much more humid environment than than we're used to. And we have more holes and cracks and all that yeah, fun stuff for things to get in. And I mean, if we leave the door front door open for too long, there's like tin flies in our house. Just how life works here. But I just wanted to see how I could reduce it. Into like the we talked a little bit, like we texted you about crypto and stuff like that, and how to stop spread of things like NIDO and crypto. So. Can we talk a little about like biosecurity and we can let me go stick this guy back before we do that though. <laughs> yeah, I forgot it was a little bit. Right. It's such a uh, chill snake. I'm glad you're not into those. I hope I hope people don't think uh that we have like someone's gonna be like we have mites now. That we no <laughs> maggots look very different than mites and we see them immediately and we dump them. It's yeah. just when you it's have when ass, you have right? over a hundred animals I mean, I'm not saying like we have, there's other people who have like 10,000. So I feel like I shouldn't complain, but we have over a hundred babies and cleaning them and the Aspen, you look and you spot clean as much as you can, but they're the same color as the freaking Aspen. And there's and like anything know, with moisture in it at this point, we just end up dumping out. Yeah. If there's any sort like of wetness, we just worse. dump it. Because so, yeah. in two days later, they'll, they'll be there. And, you know, even if there's no maggots now, they'll be there in two days. And so. But I just feel like we waste so much aspen bedding. Well, and it really just is scattered all over the room so much. Yes. And I have to vacuum every single day, which is always fun. i just so envious of all the paper towel people. Paper towels can be a problem, too, because they can hold the moisture and the little fruit fly larva can live right there in that. True. Yeah, like like I said with the ball pythons, they lived in that, too. So Yeah, you know, they live in in the cocoa chunks and the cocoa fiber they live in sphagnum they live in anything i mean they're they're super super adaptable that's why they live everywhere you know they've evolved for it right that's all i can say is boo <laughs> we have like a million of the little sticky things um yeah, to catch them but it's not enough what are you going to we're just gonna we're gonna Talk about what happens when you don't catch things in your snake. In your snake room turns into a pathogen room. Yes. <laughs> so what is? I mean, what is the current state of the Nido crypto stuff? I mean, how do you feel like that affects the hobby as a whole? I think it's well, it's a lot like they've talked about on NPR. I think it's something that nobody wanted to think about, nobody wanted to talk about until it was 
so in your damn face that you had to think about it and talk about it. You know, when people started losing collections on a grand scale, when it became a lot more obvious that they were, these things were out there and you can't just pretend they're not anymore. Um, and it's a part of the hobby you have to deal with. And again, it kind of goes a bit back to what I was saying about how we as keepers keep all of our animals, you know, the, the rack system way of keeping things, you know, keep them on paper, keep them sterile. Again, I get why we do it and I'm not trashing people who do it. Cause I've got all my ball pythons in a rack. It's, it's convenient. It's easy. But by doing that, we're also opening them up to potentially being more prone to these things because we're keeping them in closed quarters. We're keeping them more sterile. So they're more susceptible to infection. And so it's a toss up as to how we get around these things. And so how does someone as an established breeder go ahead and make sure nothing's happening? I don't think you can make sure nothing's happening. I think you just have to make sure that you are always on the lookout. And anytime you see an animal that may be compromised in any way, isolate it. Um, and that may mean that you never get to use a breeder ever again if you can't show that it's clean and that it's no longer carrying the disease. And with some things, that may be, you can never show that they're clean. Um, you know, we don't know what the persistence of some of these organisms is. We don't know what the persistence of NIDO is. You know, it's possible that the snakes, that it's just like a flu. You get it, you go through it, you come out the other side and you have an immunity to it. Or rather than being the flu, it could be like herpes. You get it, you're infected, it becomes quiet, but it's still in you, and at some point in the future it can come back up, and you're infectious when it comes back up. You know, We don't have enough knowledge of how the virus, what the nature of the virus is, and what its cycles are, because we're only really now getting a grip of just how widespread it is in the community and in our in our populations. And do you have an idea as to, I mean, how testing is done for these things, whether it be NIDO or crypto, and then why they seem to have positive, negative, positive, negative, you know, it can go back and forth? Yeah. Um, most of the tests are PCR tests. So PCR is polymerase chain reaction. Um, simple version is it finds the DNA using two little pieces that then act to Xerox a specific piece of DNA over and over and over and over and over again. And then you look for a positive signal based on that piece of DNA getting repeatedly cleaned. I'm lost. Or repeatedly shown up. Mm -hmm. So if it shows up a bunch? Well, no, it, it's not if it shows up a bunch, it's if it shows up at all. Um, PCR is a super sensitive process. 
So you can have a single piece of DNA that has the, the, gene, the sequence of letters that these two copy pieces find. And each time it cycles, you start with one, you get two, you get four, you get eight, you get 16, you get 32, and you just amp it up until you get a signal. Now, how long it takes to see that signal? Right. How many times around does it go? Right. Um, most testing, based on you know work that I've done, things that I do in my own industry, things that I've done through my studies, you know, you tend to run a PCR about 40 cycles. Mm, okay. um, if you don't see it after 40 cycles, you're probably dealing with something where there's, you know, it's not there or it's only one or two copies of it are there. Now, if I test my green tree python for NIDO and I get a negative, that could be because my green tree python does not have NIDO. Or it could be because after 40 cycles, I didn't see a signal because there's only one or two of the virus particles in that animal when I tested it. And it wasn't enough at 40 cycles to be found. But like three. But then you test it later. Right. Or you keep an eye on the animal and it starts to show symptomology. You know, some yeah. people say, well, it's sick, but I tested it for NIDO before and it came up negative, so I know it doesn't have NIDO. Well, no. Mm. Test it again. Now you test it for NIDO because it's having an active infection. Like the herpes. And you have a thousand viruses in there now. And after, you know, you check with the PCR, you can set it up on the machine so that it checks after every cycle. And now you see a signal at 27 cycles. Mm. And that tells you, okay, now I know how much is in there. Um, and depending on the type of lab and the type of test, you can actually set it up so that you have a positive control that you ladder with how many copies, you know, a million copies, 100,000, 10,000, 1,000, 110, 1. And see where it and you can and when you look at those and where they come up and then you test your own sample if you know if the million copy comes up at 25 and the 100,000 comes up at 23 and you've got a sample that comes up at 24 then you know you have something between 100,000 and a million copies of the virus in that sample that you tested Damn, I got it till just there. That's okay. I don't get the last thing you said. <laughs> it basically it's a ladder. If you have a ladder of standards that you know the concentrations of, yes. Okay. If on the ladder the million copy is the top step, okay, and the hundred thousand copy is the next step down, yes. If and then when you look at your sample, it's between them. Okay. Then you know that your infectious, your animal infection is between a million and a hundred thousand. So, but it depends on, like I said, it depends on where your animal is, if it's even expressing the virus. So, so can it not be expressing it at all? Like completely, not at all, not even one that isn't, you know. But there's a, but yeah, it's possible. Not, I mean, that, that's what happens with 40, people. Then there's, you know, not. You right. I mean, it might be so low, you know, it might be, yeah, it, there might be only one copy there. And the test may not be sensitive enough to pick up one copy. 
There are some tests that are. I don't. I haven't looked into the depths of the NIDO or the crypto tests. But you know, again, there are some tests out there that are sensitive enough to pick up a single copy of a genome. Um, but it may be that it'll only pick it up if you run it out to forty-five or fifty cycles, which is outside the norm of running. So and if you run things that long, sometimes you just get a lot of background noise, so it looks like you've got a signal, but it's just background noise, so it's a false positive. So I feel like unless it's that super intense tester or it's showing symptoms, it's... Confident. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, like it, almost there, feels point, it almost feels pointless to do it because... Do we need a more precise test or is it the nature of the virus? It, it's a little bit of both. Um, I mean, you can get a more precise test, but say you get a test that's only sensitive down to 10 copies. And if your animal is recently infected or if the infection is latent, there may be less than 10 copies. Mm. So the test can be really good because it can detect 10 copies. But your if, snake might not show that. if your snake isn't expressing 10 copies, then your test, even though it's really good, is going to miss it. Which is why it's important to repeat tests over time and especially keep an eye on your animal. Because if it does start showing some type of symptomology, that's when you absolutely want to test it because it's more likely to have crossed over that threshold. But, but I mean, if when it's, but it also when it's already showing symptoms, is you I'm could be hosed, yes. Right. Is, you know, it goes back to if you see an animal that's showing any type of symptomology, the first thing you do is isolate it. Don't keep it in the room with all your other animals and get on Facebook and say, my snake is sick. What do I do? Okay, first get your snake out of the fucking room. Then go to Facebook and say, my snake is sick. What do I do? And then when we all say, get it tested and go to a vet, don't tell us that you're just going to go and get Batril over the counter and you're going to put F10 in a fogger and you're going to pump it into your snake and, you know. These things aren't helping. In fact, in a lot of cases, they're making it worse. Mm. You know, you're treating for things that it doesn't have. Right. You're stressing the animal's system out even more, which is weakening it, which is then causing the infection to get higher. You're also, you know, you pump antibiotics into something that's infected with a virus. Now you're building up antibiotic resistance. So you're creating superbugs and snakes, mm. and it's just bad all around. Oh no! <laughs> so uh... find a good veterinarian, make friends with the veterinarian, and make sure they understand reptiles. <laughs> I feel like even if you find a reptile vet, they may not even be. They're on not top doing the test, Nido, right? You know, they might not be. But that's that's like that's the importance of finding a good vet, making friends with the vet. So, and, you know, not necessarily bring them over to your house and for, you know, beers and barbecue, but I don't think that's a problem either. But it's good to have a really well-established relationship with your vet because you probably know more about the specifics of things like NIDO and crypto. And that way, when you go into your vet, you can say, look, my animal's showing these symptomology. We know in the hobby there's this disease called NIDO, you know. We can talk to Fish Head Exotics. They can send the, the testing kit up. You can take the swab for me. We'll send it in and get it tested and find out whether my animal has NIDO. And once we know it has NIDO, 
then we can work on a treatment process from there as to what we have to do. Or once we find out it has crypto, we can work on a treatment process from there. You know, it may not have any of those things. It may be, you know, after taking swabs of your animal for crypto and NIDO, it still comes back negative for both of those. But because you've now started talking to your doctor, your vet about things that it could have, you know, the vet starts thinking about other things like, well, let's also take blood cultures. Let's take sputum cultures. Let's streak them out and see if something's growing on a plate. And they, you may find out that it's got, you know, pseudomonas or snake herpes or SFD or something. You can find out what the other things are, but it's because you engaged the vet and you not necessarily trumped them with your knowledge, but you gave them your knowledge as well to help build that relationship and build the treatment plan. You start working together as a team with them rather than just, you're a vet, you figure it out. I'm just going to sit over here with my thumb in my ear. And then when you don't find out that it's NIDO, I'm going to yell at you because I knew what NIDO was, but you didn't. Right. Um, Isaac, I know I'm not talking to Mike, but Isaac Isaac, oh, well, here you go. Look at that. See, I told you we had newfangled technology here. An see. animal that seems to have immunity in an infected collection, or at this point is 100% infection potential. Um, I don't know of any animal that shows an immunity, but how would you know? Especially when you're getting... If your animal is immune... It could be infected, but not showing symptomology. Right. So you wouldn't think to test it because it's knowing no symptoms, showing no symptoms. Well, how do they show find out immunity for other things or like um, or whatever? How they determine immunity? That would well, it depends on what you're looking for. Most cases, you look for immunity by doing an antibody test. So you would draw blood, and you would see if the blood binds to the virus. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. <laughs> Simple um, version. Simple version. Gotcha. So can you do that? Thanks. There's the technology. <laughs> the technology to do it is there, but I don't know that the technology has been applied. Because basically, so what you would do is you would take a plate that would have the virus on it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you isolate the blood from the snake and you wash that over the plate. Okay. Now, if the snake has antibodies because it's developed an immunity, those will bind to the virus. Right. Okay. But how do you tell if they've bound to the virus? Right. What you would need is then to take serum from something else that has antibodies to snake antibodies. So. Like, <laughs> you would have a rabbit that you have exposed to snake blood, and it creates antibodies against snake. And you inject those into that. So then you put that onto the dish, but on those antibodies, you've put a marker, like a fluorescent marker. And if it breaks. So if you, first you take the plate with the virus and you put the snake blood in. If it's immune, then the antibodies bind. And then you put the rabbit antibodies in and they bind to the snake antibodies. And then you look for a fluorescent band that shows that they're there. And if the fluorescent band is there, then you know there are antibodies to NIDO that the snake has produced. 
that, but that just shows that the snake has been exposed. That, that just shows that the snake has been exposed to NIDO at some point and has an immune response. It doesn't guarantee that it's hyperimmune and protected. I mean, this is how they would test you. Like, I'm sure working with children, you've had measles vaccination. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to get tested for a titer on that. That's what they call it. And if your titer drops below a certain point, then they re-inoculate you. Well, we don't know what the titer for immunity is in snakes, so we can't really test it. We can just tell whether or not they've been exposed. Basically, that's not going to happen, huh? No, there's no money or interest to do all that. No one cares. <laughs> no, yeah. It, 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 you know, we care, but there's not enough. Yeah. No, there's, there's not enough of us to motivate the science and the farm. Right to do stuff yeah all you people with microscopes microscopes get a, get on it band together start uh, conducting somewhat animal cruelty and injecting rabbits with snake blood so. i do not condone <laughs> at home rabbit rabbits and snakes out there. someone has both already <laughs> there's a there's multiple people who breed rabbits i think or have rabbits oh, and snakes so they have this little sample size to collect from let's so get you it gotta take it a step further and that's gonna be hard yeah. i don't know somebody we need a scientist who has snakes and a, rabbits need a travis i'm out nope nope i can't keep rabbits because i'm allergic to rodents and rabbits are rodents your daughter's gonna have to take care of rabbits. <laughs> Let's breed her up and get her ready for it. This is her life's work. We're already designing her for it. So, do you think that there's like truly any way to start a collection and protect yourself? Hundred percent. Maybe. I mean. You would have to go through some pretty extreme quarantining, like at least six months on every animal, testing the animal every month during that six month period. Um, but even then, some of these things may have a latent phase that's longer than six months, and you might not know. You know, if you have something that can sit around and hide around for years then, you know, are you really going to keep a snake in quarantine for three years? Here's waiting, testing room. it every month? Yeah, you need to get through. A different room, a room, room, room for every snake. Right. That you need. Oh. Yeah. And so, you know, how, how much time and space do you have to... All these basketball players and football players who are buying snakes, please put them in a different room and let us know. They may be able to do that. They can. They have the money to do that. Looking at you, Dwight Howard. <laughs> and Ben Simmons just got one. Get Morelia and other things. Truly, they're not usually buying any uh, green trees or anything. But like I mean, that. it's also it's also definitely a thing of ball pythons, correct? Yes, there is Nido in balls. Um, pretty much everywhere they've looked, they've found a Nido species and you know part of the problem may be that nido 
species-specific NIDO within the species is not so much an issue. It's when it's jumping that species barrier that becomes a problem. You know, the, you know, ball python NIDO may not be a problem for ball pythons, but when ball python NIDO gets into a blood python, then it's an issue. You know, it's a, it's a, the ball python NIDO is adapted and the ball pythons have adapted together so that it's not harmful in ball pythons to ball pythons. You know, they act as silent carriers. The virus, I mean, the, ultimately, a virus doesn't want to kill its host because if it kills its host, then the virus ends up dying. But then it jumps into the bloods and it's just different enough that it runs rampant in a blood python. Mm. You know, or your green tree python or your carpet python or your retic or your whatever. Your whole collection. Or like IBD. Not a big deal in boas. It seems like a lot of boas carry IBD. Once it gets into your pythons, they're dead. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's adapted for living in boas and it's, you know, they're more symbiote in boas than they are parasite or pathogen. And then once it gets out of them into something else that's naive, they don't have the ability to co live so how do we end this on a positive note i was gonna <laughs> ask a question which i don't know if it's positive but i he asked it forever ago and i just wanted Kissing to cousins. yeah i just wanted to switch subjects real quick maybe it has a positive answer isaac's other question and we keep calling him isaac when his name is isaiah on here which is confusing but uh, he wants to know if you breed cousins together is it as significant as a parent child or sibling sibling inbreeding how unrelated should a pair be if you plan on line breeding? Well, I mean, it, okay, cousins are not quite as bad as parent-child or sibling-sibling, but they're still a potential high degree of bringing deleterious genes together. Because you're enriching within a pool. Deleterious means bad deletion. Deleterious is negative. <laughs> um, you know. So the genetic relatedness in cousins is going to be a step outside of right. what it would be between you know parent to child is fifty fifty. Siblings are, I mean, statistically, siblings are 50-50, but if you look at the spectrum of it, siblings can be 100% different from one another based oh. on... So, wait, sorry, <laughs> I feel like you're about to go down another hole. I take back my huh. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, this is more, I, I would need a whiteboard behind me to really make sense of it. Can you just say how DNA is passed on? Oh, yeah, okay, I can I can do it real easy, okay? <laughs> so mom and dad, mm -hmm. right? Now you pass one on one each on to the siblings. So it could be these two or these two or these two or these two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So if the first sibling gets this, mm -hmm. and the second. second sibling gets this. 
that's 50% because they share this one. Right. But they could but get okay. if the first sibling gets this and the second sibling gets this, then they're 100% different. Gotcha. Now, with, with humans, you have 23 chromosomes, so you would have to do this 23 times. Plus, you have crossover events where this can switch with this, so you have half and half. So, statistically, the odds of having siblings who are 100% different is infinitesimally small, but it's possible. It's possible. But they will always be 50% of their parent because they had, to get, yeah, they had to get one from mom and one from dad. Is that why when you do ancestry DNA, like two siblings could have like very different percentages of like races and stuff? Yeah. Okay. So I always thought that everything traces back to ancestry.com. <laughs> A lot of yeah. genetic well, things go back to ancestry.com. For me. Well, yeah, because ancestry.com is looking at, you know, 50 or 100 or 1,000. I don't know however many markers they're looking at. But again, if they're looking at 1,000 markers and those siblings, because of how their parents gave them, mm-hmm. if parent A gave their 1,000 markers, to sibling one, but only 500 markers to sibling two, then those siblings would have radically different genetic percentages. Right. You know, but like I said, again, the statistics is going to be that siblings should share about 50%, but it's not a guarantee. And now when we're talking reptiles, (laughs) I want to talk more humans. (laughs) She's obsessed with ancestry.com, by the way. So this is why that's a thing. But that's fun. So is my wife. Yeah. Um, in reptiles, obviously we have recessive genes, which the very existence of that gene pretty much depends on us breeding things that are related together at some point, correct? Well, yes and no. It depends on how you want to go about it and how crazy you are. I mean, in theory, you could take like a visual albino and you could breed it to three different animals. Okay, so say you've got a visual male, you breed it to three wild-type females. Now, those are all 100% hets that you generate. Now, say you take each of those hets, and rather than breeding them back together, you breed them out to more wild animals. But no one's doing that. No, nobody's doing that. You could, though. You could do that three or four generations deep. Right. And then take the furthest branches and start breeding them together until you get an albino. Now, are you inbreeding because you brought those albino genes back together? No, not really, because the genetic payload separate from that albino gene is massive. So you're not really inbreeding there. Do reptile breeders do that? No, of course not, because nobody wants to keep 700 snakes <laughs> just to outbreed their albino. <laughs> you know, they take mom and they breed it back to son and then they breed those back together. And yeah, so you get a lot of inbreeding going on and it's very high across the board. Um, Why does that seem to have much less of a negative result than say mammals doing the same thing? I don't know that it does. I think that we kind of ignore some of these effects and we don't Mm. see them for what they are 
you know, I think in some cases we see smaller clutch sizes and we're not attributing that to a, right. We're not attributing that to inbreeding depression. We're just attributing that to, well, I, I only, I waited two years to breed my animal because I wanted to do it fast. So of course she only laid a small clutch, you know, we're burning animals out because we're breeding them fast or are we burning animals out because they aren't genetically healthy enough to keep breeding for year after year, after year, after year, you know, you get a snake, you know, you get a wild type corn and you keep it for 27 years. You know, how long are we keeping our albino corns, our snow corns, our honey, tessera, motley, paradox, palmetto <laughs> corn? How 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 long are those lasting in captivity? Does no, anybody no. have Does anybody have a twenty seven year old one? No. No. Is that because they can't live to be twenty seven because they're genetically inbred to the point that they only make it to twelve? We don't know. You know, a lot of people say it's because we're burning them out because we're pushing them so hard to make more. You know, are we? Is part of the reason we're seeing an uptick in Nido, crypto, things like that, because we're doing inbreeding depression that's impacting the immune system. And so these animals are now more susceptible to disease. These are questions that we don't ask, that we don't think of. You know, in some reptiles that we keep, I think we don't see a problem because they have gone through, for lack of a better term, a purge event. A bottleneck, um, you know, crested geckos are a real good example of this. Uh, rough scale pythons too. They their native populations are so small that basically all of the detrimental genes were purged out because the population crashed down to the point where you were forced to inbreed. Animals that had those bad genes all died off, so all that's left are good genes. So you can inbreed and it doesn't matter as much because there aren't any bad genes left over. But in other species like, you know, your corn snakes, your rat snakes, your ball pythons, your berms, your retics, things that there are large populations of them in the wild. They haven't seen these bottlenecks. And we are now artificially putting these bottlenecks on them in captivity. And we need to consider what it is we're doing by doing that outside of just, you know, Oh, well, <laughs> you know, I hatched out a kinked snake. Did you hatch out a kinked snake? Did you have a whole clutch of kinked eggs because of inbreeding depression and they're developing poorly? Well, I can tell you that we've had certain animals that have never been linked to kinking, but we just happen to only get two A-male stripes and both A-male stripes are kinked. And it's like, why is that happening? When those genes show up, that shows up all the other babies are normal so what's going on there yeah and maybe it's because there's some synergy between amel and stripe or maybe you know how closely related are your animals there's just so many variables there like, are like everyone have to everyone would have to be so detailed and their you know record keep like i don't know if we'd ever find the answer at this point and listen i mean this this whole industry I mean, corn snakes being the oldest starting in, you know, maybe the 60s, if you're lucky with Dr. Bechtel, 
and then ball pythons even just from the 90s i mean how does this have a long-term effect i mean because we we still have a long way to go with breeding these animals in captivity yes we do you know so it's said, like, we're, we're putting these animals under this artificial bottleneck that in you know you look at the crested geckos that's it's a natural event, but it was also probably, you know, a thousand year event that pushed them through that bottleneck. You know, we're 30, 40, 50 years deep here. We're just barely starting to hit this bottleneck to purge out these massively bad alleles and genes. And it's not going to happen overnight. You know, can we selectively breed for it? Sure. But people don't do that and we see that outside of the hobby look at things like dogs and cats people find something that's detrimental and they don't care so much because they're so insistent on breeding towards a standard Mm -hmm. that they just they keep honestly they keep refining for the crap you know you have dog breeds that are hyper prone to hip dysplasia because it's in the gene pool, but to keep the breed standard, you have to keep breeding these animals that look so much alike together, mm. damning the consequences of you're also stuck with this hip dysplasia gene. And to get the hip dysplasia gene out, you have to go outside that breed standard, but nobody's going to do it because then it's a mutt. You know, and these designer dogs, they're mutts, okay? They're mutts. <laughs> and I think it's slightly ridiculous that people are willing to pay thousands of dollars for months, but they tend to be healthier because you are breaking out of that gene pool. But the problem is now you start seeing, you know, you see the people who take a labradoodle and breed it to a labradoodle, but to maintain the labradoodle look, you have to call out the ones that don't look like labradoodles. So Mm -hmm. you're just, you're repeating that same process again. You're just going to refine to what a labradoodle is and whatever bad genes you get in that pool are going to stay stuck there because you're sticking to what you think a Labradoodle has to look like. And if it doesn't look like a Labradoodle, you don't breed it. You don't carry it on. You know, people are, people don't do that with their snakes. You know, it's, well, it's just the things and, you know, yeah, people don't care. That's what I meant. The phenotype is just such a big play in all of it. Yeah. But it's phenotypes that you don't even think about, you know, you hatch out your babies. Do you keep all of the babies, whether or not they're good eaters? Mm, you know, we try, you, yeah. what you tend to do is the ones that eat first and the ones that look the best out of the ones that eat first, you keep. Yes. But the ones that are trouble feeders and the ones that don't look as great, you're getting rid of. Yes. And you're sending those trouble feeders out to somebody else. Yes. So now they've got a trouble feeder in their collection that they got from you. And then they've got a trouble feeder that they got from Bob and a trouble feeder that they got from Steve and a trouble feeder that they got from Dave. So the trouble feeder gene is now being perpetuated. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have a, the trouble feeder gene in your collection too because the parents of that animal had to give it to that animal. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's going to say, okay, I got this clutch and one animal out of, out of it ate well. And the other 12 ate like shit. You know, you don't, you know, some, those 12 die. It doesn't matter. You still got the one you wanted. Right. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to kill that animal that you wanted. And you're not going to call the parents knowing that 
thir- mm-hmm. that 12 out of 13 of their babies were trouble feeders. You know, you're still going to breed them. And then you're going to breed that one that you kept that was a good eater to them, even though it's carrying the bad gene. You know, so nobody you wants just to want us to kill what tanks than we're killing right now. You is what monster. I feel like you're saying. I'm, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying you have to call everything, oh. but I'm saying that it's an it's a level of awareness that people don't have is right. there are things that are deleterious that you don't even think of. And there are all kinds of them that you, some of them you see like trouble feeders. Some of them you see like, you know, you have ones that tear out of their egg and all of their siblings have trouble getting out of the egg, you know? That's well, if you cut, thing? you know, it could be, you could, you know, you could have a gene that creates a stunted egg tooth. And if you're a cutter, you'd never know. Because you're cutting the eggs, so your animals never have to get out. And that stunted egg tooth is being carried on. Now, what if that stunted egg tooth is also linked to a neurologic defect? I don't think that's the case. It's just, you know, look, there's an extended phenotype sometimes that you don't even know about. You know, what if that stunted egg tooth is associated with a weaker immune system? You don't know. You could oh. be perpetuating this weaker immune system in your collection and you don't even know because it's not a phenotype you can see or can select for until it's so prevalent that it's just the given. And We were trying to we were end, trying on, to end on a high note, note and I just took it straight to hell. We, we, were, we were really trying. Um, I do have to say, at the end of this two hours and twenty five minutes and forty three seconds, well fed apparently. No, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I definitely feel smarter. I can't promise that I can repeat any of this factually to anyone else after this, but I feel like I have learned, which always I do with Travis, and I feel like this is as saddening as it might be. It's knowledge that a lot of keepers don't hear. And do need to hear. Not necessarily keepers, but breeders. A lot of breeders don't hear and need to hear and just be mindful of. We're not saying everyone needs to implement all these things tomorrow, but it's something, these are a lot of things to be mindful of. And you heard it from the doctor. <laughs> it's, oh, you kind of look like one of the doctors now. I just noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> do you watch Doctor Who? I don't watch Doctor Who. Ooh. Well, I haven't watched Doctor Who since, you know, the big crazy haired fro dude was the doctor. And so, you know, we're talking like 20 odd, 25 odd years ago. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. I don't know what either of you guys are talking about. It's a great show. It's not nearly as good as it used to, but after like 10 seasons, all the like storylines are just overlapping. You know, it, it, it doesn't make sense anymore because there's just too much like back in time, forward in time. And I, I can't watch it anymore. Um, but you look like one of the doctors. Okay. And we've gone way over time. So yes. I appreciate you first coming on very short notice. That's not a problem at all. And for staying long. And educating us. Um, I definitely feel like this is different than the first one. Yes. Um, I'm, my head doesn't hurt. And plus we're at... much more comfortable with Travis <laughs> as a whole. So I think uh, we come across a little bit better in this I'm a real approachable guy. You shouldn't have been worried about me in the first yeah, place. You're but just, the brain, you, you, you know your me brain now and my brain is just so different. <laughs> the deficiency is so large. Of, uh, uh, 
Oh, see, I can't say it very well. I want to say deleterious. But... Deleterious. <laughs> Del- <laughs> yeah. See, that's we have deleterious <laughs> genes in play. <laughs> I'm gonna try to use that word in my everyday deleterious. language. Deleterious. Really like it. Um, but I have to say, my brain does not hurt as much as the first one. So maybe we are getting smarter, or we just we also had a visual questions. representation of what he was talking about, which actually makes it so. If like anyone listened to the audio, some of the things that yeah, the, was talking the, about, the finger like, things. Yeah, when I was putting the fingers up, yeah, definitely go back and watch this on YouTube so that you can see what I was doing because just hearing me talk is not going to make sense. Yeah, 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 definitely not. And um, next time, next time I can get a whiteboard. And I can Ooh, just stand up in we'll front of a whiteboard. Get, get real Sheldon Cooper or... with us. <laughs> we'll just rent out a lecture hall and we'll invite <laughs> everybody over. That's what we should do. That's that's what we should do. We should pitch this to Eric and Owen for Carpet Fest. We yes. should we should have we should just have whiteboard area and we can all just go yes, crazy. Go nerd out. I feel like you and Owen would both be like writing. River. Oh shoot! I was about to use a big word. Eric and I would be it up. frequently recording everything and putting it in his notebooks and making sure it goes into her history. It's amazing. Yes, we'll provide all the white words. Um, okay, but Travis, That's the question. Yep, you got it. If someone wanted to reach out to you, what is the best way they can get in touch with you? Um, you can find me on Facebook, Travis Wyman. Um, I am on Instagram as Snakes and Bakes. And the greatest Instagram handle. Yes. <laughs> and the greatest bakes. Yeah, it's quality bakes. It's my other fun hobby. Um, and you can also just reach out to me by email, asplundii, A S P L U N D I I at Gmail. Much more difficult than snakes and bakes. <laughs> yes. Well, but you know, if you, if you find my Facebook, I've got a Splendii in parentheses underneath. You can find me on the forums as a Splendii. So it's not a completely foreign one. If you know, you've heard of me once you've heard of me as that. Gotcha, gotcha. Right on. As for us, if you want to uh, shoot, um, Port City Pythons on Facebook, Port City Pythons on Instagram, portcitypythons.com, the portcitypythons at gmail.com. See you guys at Oaks Reptile Show in Oaks, PA, something convention center, I don't know what it's called, um, on Saturday. And then next Saturday, Baltimore Repticon. I actually have no idea where it is, but it's It's Bal- at the Timonium Fairgrounds. Whoa. 2200 York, I believe. <laughs> okay. Will we see you there? Uh, yeah, I may be coming down. Yay! Yeah, okay, go. well, we'll be there on Saturday. Thanks for the specific You're only going to be there Saturday, not Sunday? No, Pedro's doing it Sunday. Um, so uh, we're kind of like okay. splitting. So he tape. was like, I'm gotcha. not going to get a table because I can't do it both days. But I'm like, hey, I'll get it. And then we worked it out. So, so yes, we're so doing we're Saturday. Do Pedro's going to do Sunday. Um, yeah. Three weeks in a row of doing shows. That'll be a first for us. I'm excited, nervous. I don't know. I'm also babysitting four out of the next six days in addition to working with children so i'm gonna be dead you're just gonna be all kids all the time all kids and then all snakes on saturday yeah it's just real fun well snakes are kids also because we mostly do corns which bring bring her like kids yeah Yeah. and then kids at the shows you're right okay um thank you again travis thank you everyone who listens watched whatever ask questions podcast i'll talk to not i won't talk to you guys later i'll see i can't see you guys next week Later, guys.